Look, I've been in this space for 13 years and most of the coaches and trainers that are in this space aren't actually healthy themselves. And so they can look aesthetically, you know, I guess a certain way, but coming, linking into Jess's um, information around a healthy metabolism, like really we're opening up this conversation of what is health? What is healthy? Yeah, because we can look at someone from an aesthetics perspective and based on diet culture, we can assume that that person is healthy, but we don't know that, yeah, because we're not looking at their markers. We're not looking at their menstrual cycle, their bloods. And so, you know, I think for a lot of women out there that are on their social media platforms and they look at uh, women that train, coaches, trainers, and they see what they look like from an aesthetic perspective, maybe they're lean, maybe they're thin, uh, and they assume that they're healthy. And we they we can't know that. And so this is why linking it back into looking at our metabolism, looking at our markers, because really if we can tick all the boxes on our metabolic markers, well, the system's healthy, yeah? And I could have two women in front of me and they may look very different from an aesthetic body composition point of view, but they could be healthy. Their system could be healthy. Uh, and so I think that's where we get really attached into looking a certain way, but we don't know if these people that we're looking at are actually truly healthy. Welcome to the Win at Life podcast, a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can break free from restrictive diets and build a body and life you love. I'm Kitty Bloomfield, co-founder of New Strength and your host for this episode. Today, I'm sitting down with some pretty amazing women to discuss how you should be trained to support your metabolism and hormones and reach your goals. In the episode, we cover what does a healthy woman with a healthy metabolism look like? Should I train fasted? How can I tell if I'm actually recovering from my training? How should I train if I want to lose weight or body fat? Should I be prioritizing strength training or cardio? Why strength training is so beneficial for women? And how do you actually build muscle? What are the different types of cardio and when are they appropriate? Is being fit with a low resting pulse a sign of good health? If I have low thyroid, PCOS, low temps and pulses, hormonal imbalances, poor sleep, I'm super stressed, I have Hashimoto's or any other autoimmune condition, how should I be training? What if I have exercise intolerance? How should I start training and how should I increase it over time? How should I train if I'm trying to fall pregnant or if I'm pregnant? What if I'm injured? How should I be training? And how does metabolic health affect how we recover from injury? And finally, why enjoying the training you choose to do is so important. Now, this episode is a long one. It's just over three hours. So make sure you grab a snack as well as a pen and paper because it's full of so much awesome information. I just love this episode so much. And I love all of these women. And I think if you don't follow them on Instagram, you should go and follow them now. And as always, take a screenshot and share your biggest takeaways on Instagram stories and tag me at K-I-T-T-Y-B-L-O-M-F-I-E-L-D so we can spread the word and free other women from restrictive diets. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Win at Life training podcast. I'm not really sure exactly what to call this. And I just wanted to say that I'm so honoured to have all of you on here. I really admire all of you. I think you're amazing, gorgeous, intelligent, inspiring women. And I follow all of you and 
God, there's so much more knowledge in this podcast than I have, like between you, you know, you guys all, I think, specialize in slightly um, different areas. And I learn just from your posts, like even the posts that you do every single day. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. They're all Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> and we we're just saying that there's an even amount of Aussies and Americans, which is amazing. So I feel like a lot of the pro-metabolic communities in the States more. Do you guys feel that? Yeah. And I was talking to Craig about this the other day, but when we started our gym way back when, there was only like Kate, maybe MR, Danny. I think Georgie was around real food gangsters. Like there just wasn't that many people sort of promoting this style of living, I guess. And it's so awesome now that there's like, look at all of you, there's eight of us, you know, which is just so awesome because I think I still feel like sometimes we're pushing shit uphill when it comes to the rest of the fitness industry. And it's so awesome to have so many women really promoting the same message, which is really, really great. So We've got a lot of stuff to cover, but I just thought before we started, I'll get everyone to just quickly say their name. Um, And obviously people who are listening to this will probably know who most of you are already. And I'm going to put all of your Instagram handles and websites and shit in the show notes. Um, But if you could just say, for example, hi, I'm I'm Amy. I'm this amazing gymnast um, and this is why I do it. (laughs) We'll start with Amy. Okay. (laughs) Hi, I'm Amy, and right now my training practice is mostly gymnastic strength training, uh, but previously I competed in Olympic weightlifting. Why do I do it? Uh, I train to have a strong, resilient, capable body that I can trust, and that changes my posture and how I show up in the world in all other areas of my life. And I also do it because I really like to beat men at one-arm push-ups. Yeah, fuck yeah. That's so good. <laughs> I'll just I'm just gonna go across like because you guys are sort of in a line. Adina can go oh, next. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Adina. Um currently I train primarily with kettlebells and barbells as a strength coach. And what got me here was a lot of high intensity interval classes that I was coaching in the wee hours in the middle of Manhattan and competing in powerlifting kind of shifted me to the more strength world and focusing on metabolism and hormone health. And so I train for my metabolism. I train for happy hormones. I train for general badassery and to be an incredible mom to my two little ones. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. I bet uh, guys, I hope Libby, says exactly what she put on her form on the <laughs> when it gets to Libby. Okay, Jess. My name is Jess. Um, I, I train mostly for strength and having a body that I can trust. I don't like to be in pain. And I think that's like the biggest, the biggest thing is keeping mobile. Um, for me, it's definitely transitioned from being strong and, and also having the aesthetic to now over time aging well. And also like, I'm just, I nerd out on the metabolism bit of it. Like muscle is a highly, highly uh, metabolic tissue. And so, you know, it carries you through your life. And for me, it just excites 
excites me to have, you know, a part of myself that I worked to build 20 years ago, you know, when I'm 40 or 50 or 60, like that's going to carry me through life. So mostly for strength, but also just for resilience over a lifetime. Actually, one thing we could also say is how old everyone is. Because I think that would be good. Amy, sorry, we'll circle back. How old are you? I will be 34 in July. Cool. Adina? I'm 30. I just turned 30. Jess? Uh, I'm about to turn 27. Okay. Now we're to Libby. I'm 37. And I train because like the others, I want to be strong. Um, I also train for longevity, as Jess said, um, particularly, you know, just being like a really strong, healthy 90-year-old. That's like my (laughs) goal. Um, I also train to, I love being athletic. So I do include that kind of athletic type of training as well. Like, you know, coming from a CrossFit background, I was doing it for 10 years competitively. So yeah, I definitely have that side to me. Um, And I think the quote Kitty's talking about was a ripple toe quote. It said, strong people are harder to kill than weak people and more useful in general. So that kind of sums me up. I mean, I don't want to get killed if there's a zombie apocalypse, you know, I want to be able to get away. So, yeah, you know, who knows what's going to happen after 2020. So true. (laughs) Okay. Layla. Oh, hi everyone. My name is Layla. I Interestingly, didn't come from an athletic background. Um, I actually came from a performance background and I got into training because training helped me with my um, stage performance. So I was at drama school and if anyone's ever done stage work, it's quite physically grueling. And I'm a Sri Lankan background, so I'm very uh, lean and hypermobile as, you know, genetically. And I I really struggled with, you know, keeping up. So I got into strength training because of that. And also really because I had quite a traumatic childhood and exercise actually helped me get into my body. And I remember um, when I first started really getting into movement work in drama school, it's actually the first time that I wanted to be in my body when in my late teens and so that's what it's always been for me so it's an interesting thing I think because a lot of people exercise especially from that adrenaline place to like get out of their body like the opposite I want to be inside it so I've never really had the desire to push myself to extremes um good or bad like sometimes kitty's like talking to me about strength training and I'm like oh once I can do 12 chin-ups I'm like okay cool (laughs) done that (laughs) So I don't have that competitive drive. But, you know, for now, um, you know, I've actually been through a lot of with my health. Um, I'm recovering from mold disease and um, have really bad Hashimoto's from having mold disease. And so I'm actually, I'm starting way at the bottom again. And I also had uh, four years of orthodontics to reconstruct my jaw. So I'm completely starting at the bottom. It's very confronting. Um but it's given me a lot of perspective for clients because that's what I do is work with, you know, complex injury and complex health conditions. So I'm basically doing a lot of rehab, a lot of fascial uh, work, a lot of um, mobility, stability, and a lot of aerobic um, recovery training, which Libby and I will talk about later. Um, And all the exercise intolerant people have actually had an experience of being exercise intolerant. And so I'm building myself back. So my goal is to be, um, you know, I want to be able to keep up with my daughter. She's amazing. She's, she loves climbing and she loves running and 
she's got this awesome um, gymnastics kind of body. You know, she just loves hanging off stuff and planking. And, and I just want to be able to keep up with her and enjoy life with her. And, you know, my dog recently just passed away, but I was able to pick him up, you know, he's 40 kilos and carry him around. And to me, training is about being able to live your life to its absolute full potential and, you know, anything else that comes along with that aesthetic is a bonus. So that's me. Thanks, Leila. Loren? Now, Loren, can I just ask, how do you actually say your name? Because you message me and go, I love how you <laughs> funny how you say it. I'm like, obviously, I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> it's actually Lauren, but oh. it's confusing because um, I was named after Sophia Loren. Oh. So I, I guess either one can go, you know? Because <laughs> I'm like, Loren de la Cruz. I'm like, oh, what a cool name. The way you say it sounds more exotic. So I, please, sorry. Please keep, please keep, keep going. <laughs> but no worries. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been an athlete and a dancer my whole life. And I'm actually a certified CrossFit instructor as well as a oh, wow. coach. Like Libby. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, also weightlifting coach. But um, I'm currently not coaching at all. Uh, and the pandemic definitely had a lot to do with that, but it's also been nice to take a break. Um, so right now I've, I've really shifted my training. I've shifted my training over the past two years. Uh, I train for energy now just to have stable energy to get energy out. Um, I also train for strength. I love feeling strong and athletic. I love challenging myself, but I also like to have fun. So you know, I, I recent, I've been doing a lot of powerlifting, weightlifting over the past two years, but also recently started incorporating a little bit of hit, you know, high intensity interval training, um, and bar as well to kind of go back to my dance roots. Um, and yeah, I just want to be super resilient. You know, I've definitely been injured and it's not fun. And, um, in those times, you know, I kind of knew exactly what happened. And a lot of the time it was overtraining. So um, I've definitely learned my lesson. And right now I'm just all about building my body up because soon I'll be on my own preconception journey and I want to be able to carry future children really well. Um, mm. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully um, mitigate any, you know, um, sort of ligament issues or uh, lower back issues that could happen during pregnancy too. How old are you? 31. 31. So everyone's in their 30s, except Jess is in her 20s. And I'm the only one oh, lonely, I to say. lonely in the 40s. How old are you, Leela? I'm 40. Fuck yeah, there's someone else in the 40s with me. We're the two oldies. <laughs> hey, I'm not, I'm not joining that group with you. 30, 40s and you 30. <laughs> yeah. I still haven't turned 40 because we were we were in lockdown, so I'm... I'm <laughs> I'm still yet to turn 40. Doesn't count, yeah. <laughs> I, want to, I want to turn 40, but I just want to do it with my friends yeah. and celebrate. <laughs> so boring. All right, last but not least, Meg. Hey, um, well, if it makes anybody feel better um, when people, when I'm 32, but when I say I'm 32, people are like, really? You seem a lot younger. I don't think it's the way I look. I think it's just like my personality. People are like, I don't know if you're mature enough. Do you have a kid? Um, but so hi, I'm Meg. Um, and, um, I would say that I, I really wish, um, that I could say that I'm not competitive, but I'm very competitive with myself. 
And um, Kitty, I feel like I'm more like probably aligned with you. Like I want to lift really heavy. I want to beat out all the boys. I grew up with three brothers. So like, I'm just like, you know, like, all right, that guy, he's squatting 600. I could do that. You know, so I really got to always kind of bring that back. But I, I grew up playing competitive soccer, then got into some marathons, triathlons, Olympic lifting, CrossFit, you know, the deal. You're just always chasing like the next thing to mentally challenge yourself during that time, my own personal stories that I struggled with disordered eating and an eating disorder, which I think are very different and really got, although I'm this competitive athlete nature really let like the, and even bodybuilding really let that, um, all my heart and soul really get dictated by diet culture and, and training for aesthetics versus now, you know, how I feel like I'm training, which is a little bit of bodybuilding style, a little bit of endurance. I still like to run. I'm actually 18 weeks pregnant. So I'm a little bit more focused on pelvic floor, getting ready for a great labor and just being as strong as I can in my pregnancy. Um, and then outside of pregnancy, um, I, it's really just about like feeling really good, trying to give myself the mental push and stimulation and, I, you know, I love doing correct push-ups next to guys that are not doing it. You know, I'll just kind of walk up there and I won't really, but I will look and I'll just be like, if I do it, you know, I hope you see me. Um, I'm just kidding. Maybe. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really it. And I loved what, um, I forget who said it, but they said they wanted to be like really badass mom. And now that we Dana. having, yes, now that we know that I'm having two boys, I feel like I've really got to step my game up, you know, just in case I've got to like, you know, dad's not around. Mom's got to hold on the fort. So that's me. Cool. Well, thanks everyone. Just quickly before we start, I wanted to, cause there's some of you, like, you, well, you guys will know, and anyone who follows will know, like, I was just stupid with the diets, like, did everything, did ridiculous things, like, took drugs where you poo the fat out, you know, I'd do crazy-ass fasting, like, just stupid shit for a long time. So who here, and, but some of you I know haven't done that. So who here has done dumb diets like me for a long time? Adina, Meg, mm-hmm. Loren. I literally injected myself with pregnancy hormones when I was. Well, the HCG diet, yeah, the five hundred calorie one, yeah, Yeah. good one. That was my my lowest low. (laughs) Scraping the barrel. I'm right there with you. I tried to take SARMs, so I was like, "How can I? How can I get bigger muscles?" And so my voice isn't deep enough. Apparently, you got to get on the speed, ladies. The speed diet was the best. You're never hungry. You just get up in the morning, big line of speed, cigarette. You know, it's like I was so thin. (laughs) <laughs> just rolling my eyes everyone <laughs> yeah we are all not agreeing yeah. with any of this yes <laughs> I did um before a powerlifting competition I did like a full-on water manipulation diet with like all the salt all the water it was horrible I felt like trash on the platform and it was like the worst meat ever <laughs> I remember when I competed like in you know fitness shows eight liters of water a day did you do that stupid water loading Meg oh so bad like why? Anyway, so, okay, hands up who hasn't been a retard. I sure I shouldn't say retard. That's not a very nice word to use. Hands up. It's not very politically correct. Oh, I'm probably going to get people message me now. Um, I didn't mean to say that. Who <laughs> has not been as silly as us and not done the diets? And so really we've just got Amy, Libby, and Leela left. So you guys, like I know... 
Libby and Amy, like you guys have been athletes for a long time. Hey, like really for your whole life, you've competed in different sports and you've um, like fueled your body. Yeah, um, I think I think I haven't necessarily done any stupid diets, but I have mm. not always eaten for the performance. So because I that was more I just didn't know, and that's what I find with a lot of my clients as well. Mm. Not everyone's mm. trying desperately to restrict; they're just honestly not eating enough, like mm. for the huge amount of output I was doing. Mm. So I would still have you know had big issues from that, but yeah, not purposely yeah. not purposely restricting, <laughs> just under eating, yeah. not eating no, enough, no competition, bodybuilding, or anything like that. Just yeah wanting to perform as good as possible but yeah not fueling well crossfit's like obviously you need heaps of calories yeah i was talking to sam dancer actually the other day and he was saying some days he would eat eight thousand calories a day when he was competing i was like holy shit i was like this is so much food yeah yeah amazing my fiance was on seven thousand five hundred when he was doing regionals two years ago and i was like fucking get it in man god your food bill would have been so expensive when he was competing (laughs) yeah that's of carbs yeah wow and Leela I think you were I just remember you saying you just ate and trained and you yeah never really per- or you you I think you were the same you had the, you had the issue with your teeth and the braces and you just couldn't eat <laughs> because your teeth were so sore yeah it's quite different for me because I actually spent most of my life struggling to put on weight mm. um and being sent to the doctor or you know whatever to put on weight um and I was just always bloody hungry, so I never understood why one died. Uh, and I actually come from a different background, I guess, in that I'm a self-confessed adrenaline junkie. So like I said before, that I had a lot of trauma in my life and when, you know, trauma happens, I actually, my whole digestive system can shut down and then I just run on adrenaline. And so it's not a conscious decision um but I can could go for long periods of time you know without food or when I was in those traumatic places and also there's a long history of starvation as you know I'm Asian like there's punishment for children in Asia is pretty full-on and so there's a genetically um historically through generations a lot of history of starving people in my family through the generations as punishment and um so I think that has carried down a lot through to me and so yeah very different and then I had my jaw so my jaw stuff going on and I was just so painful like I just couldn't eat so every six weeks I tried and put everything like all my meals basically in a Nutribullet and tried to just but like drinking eggs and bacon is like disgusting um so I just you know and then I just got into this really bad habit of like getting up in the morning have an espresso you know be training clients at 5 30 and I didn't really think anything of it right because I didn't really have any health problems as such or um but what I realize now is four years of doing that is probably why I got mold disease and, you know, probably why I've had such a bad experience after pregnancy because it just was the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was kind of not a planned, well, it was planned but not planned pregnancy. I wanted to be pregnant, but I you know, I probably should have re reverse dieted first and, you know, all that sort of stuff, um, but I didn't. You know, that's the, you, you just get a baby, <laughs> you get a baby, right? <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's a different story. It's, it's um, never purposefully dying. I call it accidental fasting. And I notice it with a lot of my clients who uh, have that thing where they rely on adrenaline. And, you know, Garbo Mate talks a lot about it, how you 
you know, in his book, uh, what is it, The Hungry Ghost or that adrenaline cortisol is very addictive. And so for me it was use my my trauma to make myself a better person, be the best business person, you know, get totally away from my roots and be really successful. And if you don't deal with that emotionally, you know, with coaching or counselling or whatever, it just continues as a cycle. You're always, there's no trauma left in your life. So forgetting to eat actually helps you with that adrenaline kind of thing. And then, of course, I got into Poliquin and I took a shitload of fish oil and part of the mold protocol is taking a shitload of fish oil. So I'm just like a walking ball of pooper. <sighs> it's like you did everything, the, like the worst things you could do ever for your metabolism, but they made you do all of them. Like, I just remember, like, we've, I don't know if anyone's ever done the Charles Poliquin. And Charles Poliquin's dead, right? He's 50 and he had a heart attack. Uh, his program is just like so many supplements and fish oils. And I actually did it as an experiment to see what would happen and nothing happened. I was just really annoyed at taking all these fish oils. But, yeah, obviously now I can see what's happened. <laughs> um, so I just want to say before we begin that one thing I noticed that everyone said is that we all wanted to be strong. Yeah, like I didn't notice anyone saying they want to run marathons or be long-distance runners. Or anything. So I just want to say that. Yeah, we're all united. <laughs> we, we are we... united. But I do enjoy running. I do, I grew up mm. like an ass, like, outside midfielder, so I was always mm. running. And so I actually still, even in my pregnancy, will run. I just have mm. to kind of be careful because mm. it can be a stressor on your body. So, but I do, mm. I do actually, I do like to be strong, but I do like to run a little bit. Mm. But no marathon runners. I mean, like, and, every, and everyone said, oh, they want to be strong. So yes. I, think I, also, I like sprinting. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. Come, I come from an athletic background, so that yeah. track and field, but it's like yeah. 100 meters, 50 meters. Um, yeah, like that's what I would do for fun, for sure. But so yeah, hit. Not mar- not hit, hit based well, training. It's not, it's not really hit. It's yeah. more that power and explosive yeah. training. Yeah. Um, that's kind of my style of fun. Yeah. But no, no one's here is running like 10, 15 Ks every day, hitting no. the pavement. Nah, okay, cool. Yeah. So I think everyone can agree that strength being strong is beneficial in some form yeah is what Absolutely. i'm trying to say yeah. yeah yeah which is so awesome and so good that we have so many different backgrounds and i think and like i said in the post like context is important you know i think people go well how should i be training well it's like well what do you enjoy you know what's your goal what's your health like um and i think you need to ask those questions first and that's going to give you an indication of how you should be training because we're all different and again i think too like you got to enjoy it you know so if you hate strength training you're just probably not going to stick with it you know <laughs> um and i've got friends actually that don't do any strength training like i talk about this friend of mine who's just because i think it's awesome is plays roller derby um and she doesn't do any strength training but she loves it you know and she's healthy and she just eats food and you know she's got no issues around food so I think yeah it's important that you actually enjoy what you're doing and everyone's going to enjoy different things but you know if you wanted to build some muscle it's probably not going to happen running 20ks a day but we'll obviously get into that (laughs) so um the first question is what does a healthy uh, woman with a healthy metabolism look like? So let's actually answer that first. So I've got Jess and Amy um, answering that one. So h- how do we know if we're actually healthy and we've got a good metabolism? Yeah, I mean, I can let Amy. Amy, do you want to you wanna go? 
No, you go. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll just give the basics and I'm sure that you'll have, um, more to say on that, especially when it comes to training. But I think a healthy metabolism can look, I, I like to say it as a well-rounded woman. And I mean that in like in the best possible way. So this is not just physical, but this is mental and emotional as well. And I think this is really being overlooked in this space right now, because we have our physical markers of being healthy, right? Which is a pretty balanced mood, um, you know, not feeling tired all day or exhausted all day or fatigued all day, not having brain fog or like being unclear or feeling this, like, I guess we could generalize it as anxiety, but there's more to it. It's like fear and overwhelm and just driven by you, you're making reactive decisions all day, or you're reacting to every possible thing as a like you have to defend yourself against an attack. So really I see it as not being stuck in fight or flight. And that's going to look like being warm and feeling happy and content and having a good libido being, you know, clear minded, but not not so that you are reactive. Um, and then also on the emotional side, like really being able to um, react to the stressors in your life well, because a lot of people talk about lowering stress and lowering stress and lowering stress, but life is stressful. And every day we're going to have to meet the demands that life places upon us. And this is where training can actually be very helpful is it, you know, it really teaches us how to meet those demands. It's almost like a training practice for life, but we need to still be able to sleep at night and we still need to have a good libido and we still need to feel energized throughout our day, even if life is stressful. And I think that's like really uh, important. And yeah, the high temps and the high pulses and balanced blood sugar, those are all going to be a product of that. But at the end of the day, it's really more about how are we resilient to the stressors that life is placing upon us, both emotionally, mentally, physically, and how are we reacting to that? Like, are we still having a good quality of life? And just what about the menstrual cycle? Yeah. I mean, yes, we want to be ovulating. We want a around a 28 day cycle. So I saw that you had a question a little bit more about this later, but you know, a healthy menstrual cycle, they'll say like experts, whoever these experts are, will say like anywhere from like 25 to 35 days. But I think around more of like the moon cycle is really what we want to be aiming at. So I find that as women balance their hormones, they're going to really reflect uh, very closely to the moon cycle, be more towards 28 days. That might look like 27 days to them, or maybe 30 or 31. But I find that the healthier woman gets, the closer she's getting to a moon cycle. And um, obviously, we want an ovulatory cycle, and we want minimal symptoms. So we don't want the mood symptoms, like what we would generally call PMS. Um, we don't want heavy periods, cloudy periods, super crampy and painful periods. Like we're definitely going to feel a little lower around our period, but it shouldn't be this like week of hell. Um, so would you say then just for the listeners, like a range, say 27 to 31, if it falls within that range, it's probably considered healthy say more focus on the quality of the period over the amount of time because there are women who have 28 day cycles that are absolute hell on earth so mm -hmm. I don't like to like I think numbers can sometimes mess people up in the head even more I would say focus on the quality of your cycle first and the time will follow later on mm -hmm. um I would much rather have a 25 personally I would much rather have a 25 day ovulatory cycle that's painless than a 28 day cycle that's just super simple symptomatic, low progesterone, just, you know, a nightmare. Mm -hmm. 
Cool. Yep. Amy, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think uh, I'll go for more of like an aesthetics kind of perspective. I think that that was the second part of their question. Like what does a healthy woman look like? Uh, And look, I've been in this space for 13 years and most of the coaches and trainers that are in this space aren't actually healthy themselves. And so they can look aesthetically, you know, I guess a certain way, but coming, linking into Jess's um, information around a healthy metabolism, like really we're opening up this conversation of what is health? What is healthy? Yeah, because we can look at someone from an aesthetics perspective and based on diet culture, we can assume that that person is healthy, but we don't know that. Yeah, because we're not looking at their markers. We're not looking at their menstrual cycle, their bloods. And so, you know, I think for a lot of women out there that are on their social media platforms and they look at uh, women that train coaches, trainers, and they see what they look like from an aesthetic perspective, maybe they're lean, maybe they're thin, uh, and they assume that they're healthy. And we, they, we can't know that. And so this is why linking it back into looking at our metabolism, looking at our markers, because really if we can tick all the boxes on our metabolic markers, well, the system's healthy. Yeah. And I could have two women in front of me and they may look very different from an aesthetic body composition point of view, but they could be healthy. Their system could be healthy. Uh, And so I think that's where we get really attached into looking a certain way, but we don't know if these people that we're looking at are actually truly healthy. You know, Mm. do they have all their metabolic markers ticked off? Do they have healthy regular menstrual cycles? Um, Mm. And so, yeah, that's, I think, from my perspective is we're looking at these women that may look a certain way, but we don't truly know if they're actually healthy, if their body is healthy and thriving. Mm. And you know what I see a lot too is like a lot of these women down the track come out and go, oh, I'm fucked. You know, like they've got all these issues and they come out and, and admit that they've got all these digestive issues and menstrual cycle issues, um, you know. So obviously being super lean is not necessarily a sign of um, of good health. And I like what Jess said too about the balance, you know, because we can look at all the health markers and I'm definitely um, – can get into this trap because like I have a bit of a addictive personality, you know, I was addicted to drugs and alcohol. Now I've found a different addiction probably to <laughs> building a business and tr- it's the truth, you know, that's just how I am, you know, but at least it's not taking drugs. And I often find, and Craig and I talk about this a lot, we get sucked back in like we, cause we're excited about it. Like we love the apps coming out. We're doing all this cool stuff, but then we just work too much. And, you know, like I, I feel disconnected from people. So when that happens, I'm like, okay, I need to go see my friends. I need to go and have those that relationship time again. And I think you're right, like you can do all the right things, but, you know, you're doing fulfilling work. Do you have those good connections with some friends? Like you're going and having some fun time. And I guess like you say, it's just trying to find that balance and being aware um, and, you know, having that more balanced approach. So, yeah, that's that was really awesome. Um, so what about, and again, I know you guys are going to say, well, obviously it's going to depend on the health markers, but what's, a range, like a body fat range that's healthy for women, you know, because I when, when we did the, just to give you, we, we did the podcast with Ray Pete and he said, look, I think that it get under 20 in, in the teens is not healthy for women. 
Um, he actually said, and this is just his opinion, I'm not saying this is right, <laughs> he said, I think 25% is you don't want to go below that for women and for fertility, 30%. So can you guys please comment on that and talk about that? I'm going to make Jess do this because Jess, you had such a great story today about, I mean, this was about women that put on fat, but I think what you were saying was such an, a truthful thing of why body fat in women is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just think it needs to be heard because I've never heard it be put that way. And I was like, that is great. That's awesome. And more women need to hear that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a big believer that body fat plays a role. And I try to just like pound this into women's brains is body fat has a purpose. Body fat has a purpose. Mm -hmm. And at different seasons and phases of life, it has a different purpose. And I truly believe that different types of body fat or where we store body fat also plays a different purpose. So oftentimes I see as women start nourishing their bodies, they immediately start to gain weight right in the abdomen. And this is like being lovingly referred to as like adult baby syndrome or, you know, something like that, where you look like almost like a little girl, you just gain all this weight in your stomach. You have this big stomach and like these long limbs, you know, and then over time, as you, you really balance your metabolism and you create this safety, right? The body, oftentimes when we're spending years and years yo-yo dieting or years and years in calorie restriction, where our body's having to compensate for, you know, it's trying, it's having to pick between, um, fueling our liver and fueling our heart, you know, like th that is a extremely stressful process for the body. And we're maybe unknowingly doing that. But after we go so long where our body's having to compensate and move things around here, we start to provide our body with what it's been asking for all along. And it thinks at any possible time, it's going to go right back into that famine. And so bloop, it goes all towards your reproductive system. And most of these women are sitting at like, 96 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm sorry for for Celsius people. I'm not sure. <laughs> I still trip up on that, but they're, they're cold. And so of course we're trying the, the, the body's trying to create heat where heat does not exist because we got to protect those vital organs. And so over time, then I see it start to shift to the boobs and the hips. I mean, I can't tell you the hundreds of times where women are like, Oh my gosh, I have a new pair of boobs and a new, a new butt. And wow, I'm just digging my curves. And it's like, it's, it starts to shift. And then I've had women tell me that, you know, they either genetically have big hips and thighs or when they're breastfeeding, they immediately start gaining weight in their hips and thighs and they make the most fatty, creamy breast milk. And so I started to look into that and I, I found some research that said that a lot of times when you're breastfeeding, if you're not eating enough, you're going to pull a lot of calories, specifically fat calories from the hips and the thighs to actually manufacture and make your, your milk. And so I, I, I've started realizing over time that we store body fat in different places in different seasons of life. And you'll, and you'll compare your teen body to your 25 year old body, but you're completely in a different season of life. Mm -hmm. And your 35 year old body is in a different season of life than your 25 year old body. Um, or if your your pregnant body is in a different season than your breastfeeding body and so on and so forth. And your body is putting fuel into storage to to meet the demands that it is trying to plan for. And so our brain or whatever's going on in our environment, say pregnancy is directly going to tell our body what hormones to secrete. And those hormones are going to tell our cells 
where to put fuel. Are we going to burn it? Are we going to store it for later? Where are we going to store it? And I think that's just an important way to look at body fat and, you know, what season of life are you in? Did you just come out of a 10 year, really stressful period? You're going to put on fat. You're going to need that safety for a while. And that's just what it is. And so to say like, oh, 30%, like 30% is this is the place to be. Mm. I, I don't feel comfortable saying that, but I would say that from, from my experience, it's anywhere from 25 to 35%. I've seen women who have to get up to like 35, 40% to get their periods back or sometimes even get their ovulation back. And then they'll often kind of like drift back down to this like 30% area, but it takes a long time. Like I have women who have been on this journey for almost three years for their bodies to finally get to this place where it feels safe to maybe drop in, into that more 25% range. But I find that women really have to work very hard or stress their body to a, to a point um, to get underneath that 25%. Or when they do start to get to that point, they're, they're no longer able to get pregnant. And I'd really like to, and I have myself have brought my body fat up too, because I was probably sitting around 21, 22. And then so Craig and I, well, not Craig's done nothing. I've just been eating huge sourdough pizzas every weekend. And, you know, like just, <laughs> it's been good. Brought my body fat up to, and obviously this is a rough guess, 26, 27. We just did skin folds to see. But um, I'd really like to hear Amy and Libby's thoughts on this, because you guys are obviously Lena, you're athletes, you're still healthy. You still have good metabolic markers. So I'd just like to hear a different, differing, your opinions on this as well. Um, I think that, I think for me, it kind of does make me a bit uncomfortable when you put numbers on this as well, because I feel mm. like it's kind of that, it, it really does kind of grind my gear because there are definitely healthy women at all sizes, not necessarily one extreme all the way down or one extreme all the way up, but to put this number on it, it's kind of like, well, are we making the body fat percentage, the new scale weight? Like we're not meant Mm -hmm. to put so much emphasis on numbers. And yeah, from a coaching perspective, I don't like that, but I would say that there was this quote I read on Instagram recently where it said something along the line of the weight that your body falls at naturally without you having to do anything extreme is the weight that's right for you. So mm-hmm. I know for me personally, I don't know my body fat percentage because I didn't have not had a DEXA scan in years, but mm-hmm. I don't have to diet. I mean, I eat well over 2,600 calories a day and I don't have to train. I can go on a holiday for two weeks and my weight just stays put. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the main thing would be, are you really, really, should your body be at that weight if you're having to constantly do diet cycles to keep it there? Should your body be at that weight if you're on the other hand, constantly trying to force feed the food? Like, you know, if you're in a good health, if you're in a good place you're healthy, you have a menstrual cycle, you know, like, I don't, I don't necessarily feel comfortable with the forcing of either side, because if you're happy and healthy, you're happy and healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, of course, there's extremes, and I would never go there, like, you know, but I'm talking about like a genuinely healthy person. I think it's sitting where your body naturally wants to be when you're eating well, you're nourishing yourself, you have a monthly menstrual cycle, you're training, but you're not overtraining. Um, mm. And that's where it wants to be. That's where it wants to be, you know, of course, because it depends on how much muscle you have, like you can have someone who's going to say, yeah, more muscle. Um, and yeah. obviously, you can have two people that weigh 70 kilos, for example, just taking a random number, mm. one of them is 30% body fat, and one of them is 22% body fat, they both weigh 70 kilos, the one with 22% body fat is going to look heaps leaner. But yeah, of you know, course, yeah. it doesn't mean they don't have the same amount of actual overall mass inside them, you know, and muscle is an extremely metabolic um, tissue. So, yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, that's my thoughts. I, I think, think, 
Oh, sorry. Go, go. Yeah. I think like what Libby was saying, I think also part of the reason why so many women fluctuate so much is because of how under muscled women are in our society today. I Mm. think those of us who actively build muscle and train in a way that facilitates that don't fluctuate as much what, you know, stressful seasons, seasons out of the gym, those types of things. Like we naturally sit in a place that's keeps us in good health when that muscle is present. Mm. Yeah, and this is interesting. And I just am bringing it back to my own, how I am now, but potentially to like, obviously bringing the body fat up probably will help, but it's also the intensity of the training, I think is probably a big thing. You know, and I think it's like you say, like Jess talks about the seasons, like what's the goal that, what is your goal now? Because like a lot of us, you know, like we really like, you know, I just keep from Libby and Amy because you guys are the athletes, you know, you've been athletes for a long time and I would consider myself, I've been an athlete. I love to train, you know, like I love it. But now my goal is, okay, I want to fall pregnant. So probably, you know, deadlifting to failure is not the best (laughs) idea. Um, but the muscle, you write muscle. Like I think about myself now, like, I mean, I eat a shit ton of food too. Like Craig's always like, fuck, I can't believe you can just eat so much food because I've got so much muscle. I've built that muscle now and I haven't, I'm still eating the same food, even though I'm doing, you know, different training. I'm still hungry. I still find myself really hungry, you know? And I think that's a really good point is that it's the muscle is, can, is so beneficial. But then again, you know, like I, I also find with, I don't know, Jess might be able to comment with this because she probably works with a lot of women like this. We get quite a few in a program that are like really fucked. Like they've done so much bad things to their body and so much, so many restrictive diets. So they're just, their body's not in a good place to really up the intensity with that strength training. And I feel like they're the ones that take, it's like the longer and harder they've dieted, the longer it takes for them to get back to this healthy space. But I think you're right, like Libby, I think, you know, like we've got women in our program, like a lot of women, they've already had their babies, you know, like they're in their 40s, 50s that are lean and strong, you know, they don't train heaps, but they're, and their metabolic markers are good. So I guess it's like, you know, probably, I guess you want to look at the health markers, right? Like look at the temp and pulse, how are they feeling? How are they sleeping? What's their menstrual cycle like? Um but I do think, and can we, would we all agree that being really lean, like 16, 17, 18, like super lean is probably not great for women? Or would you not agree with that? Like yeah, the really shredded. Stage weight, I'd say no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I just posted a picture, if anybody looks at my Instagram, of my stage weight. And exactly like what we were talking about was I was miserable. I had no period. I had all these things. And I know we'll talk about this, so I won't get into it too much, but there was a period where I, the only movement I could actually handle was walking. And and again, well, I'm sure we'll get into this, so I won't get in, I won't Hmm. dive too much, but you just touched on it, Kitty, where it was like, there are, there are seasons where Mm -hmm. in your life, in order to heal, to get to where you feel your best from the inside and out, you actually have to do very little to get to where you want. And, and, and most of us coming from, like we've all mentioned from an athletic background or the heart to be strong and things like that, um, that can be really challenging. So I, I don't know if I didn't get to read, if you have that question, but I hope we do have that because that I know working with a lot of women that have had eating disorder backgrounds, but still really like to work out and have had these damages. It's really emotionally challenging to figure out well, what else do I like to do? What else challenges me? Which is why I personally press so much into like 
can you serve other people? Can you give, you know, can you spend time doing other things? Because we have to also be able to find an outlet beyond just fitness when we're in a season of healing, but I am sure we'll get to that. Mm, maybe Amy, do you want to, oh, sorry, go Libby. Yeah, you go. With the body fat percentage thing, which is, I think people don't realize as well. If you have someone who's say 65 kilos and you have another woman who's 65 kilos, if the one woman with 65 kilos has say 45 kilos of muscle, and the other one has 50 kilos of fat, one with the 45 kilos of muscle and 20 kilos of um, fat has, they're the same at the end of the day, they have the same, you know, amount of body mass and that, but the other one naturally has a lower body fat percentage because of the ratios. So Mm. people always think, oh, you have to be super lean. You have to be, you have to have so little mass and tissue on your body to be mm. lean, but that's not what it is. Being lean means having a high muscle percentage, regardless of your body fat. I mean, to an extent, it's gonna lessen your body fat, but you can have a decent amount of fat and a lot of muscle, and you are a leaner person than someone who has a lot of fat and no muscle, and they look smaller. So I think this that's what the number kind of destroys people sometimes because they start mm. wanting to chase this new number. Oh, we don't wanna mm. chase the scale weight, let's chase the body fat percentage. But it's like, no, just build muscle, Mm-hmm. eat enough calories fuel your body and it's gonna your body's gonna fall where it needs to be um so yeah i just wanted to add that but go ahead amy if craig, craig was craig listening now at libby he'd be like preach sister i can preach in our program he's like fuck i just wish these women would stop trying to get skinny and just focus on getting strong and building some goddamn muscle because he's like that's when they're gonna look better they're gonna look more like they want to look and he'd just be like libby <laughs> Can I ask Libby a question though, like Libby, in your experience of having training these women who have more muscle mass and lower body fat, do you think that you can get away with less, less fat percentage when you have more muscle mass? Well, you're going to get away with it because you can't, you know, at a certain point, the fat becomes less because the muscle starts burning more fat. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of where that whole recomp idea comes in. So if you do Mm -hmm. have more muscle mass, you will have less body fat, but Mm-hmm. Muscle is a lot more of a, you know, expensive tissue for your body to run. So there's, if you're going to live like that, you, there's a responsibility. You need to feed mm. yourself very, very well because your body is just like a, your bo- for survival, your body wants more fat, less muscle. It's not efficient <laughs> at all to have muscle. So if you, it's almost like I say, if you want to be like that, you need to definitely do the right things, take the right actions. You kind of need to make sure you're earning your right to hold that much muscle, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Well, it's a commit. It's a commitment, yeah. you know, like that's why I'm always so much about eating enough food because if I don't eat enough food, I can't sleep. I can't yeah. train. You're right. You, Cause you are an athlete. You have to treat yourself like an athlete. And I think, and we can talk about this because look, I don't believe. And again, some people are not agree with, the, agree with this. Nothing wrong with trying to like focus on aesthetics. I think to a degree, like to a degree, but you know, do it in a healthy way. Like you say, you've got to be committed. You've got to be committed to fueling your body and going through these training practices and, you know, lowering stress. And um, anyway, Amy, you were going to say something. Sorry. No. No, it was beautifully expressed and articulated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone did a really good job. I, just from a coaching perspective, like I don't talk about numbers. We don't. Uh, yeah. So I've never done it myself. Like I've never dieted. I've never counted calories. I don't think I've ever done a DEXA scan. So I've never been attached to a number. And when I get these women, they have for decades. 
And I just find it's not helpful at the start. And so we just navigate right away from numbers. Um, But then the next place is what Libby just said is around muscle. Mm-hmm. and just educating around the muscle and and building muscle and that would be my focus i wouldn't even really touch on the the fat mass conversation i think too it's just like i just found because i used to do heaps of like rpm and stupid like classes and stuff and when i met craig what really helped me and it's not going to be the same for everyone but i just didn't care about the weight anymore or like i just cared about the performance you know i was like oh this is really exciting you know i can start to get stronger in the gym and that really helped me stop worrying so much about like you know the weight and then obviously my body just naturally changed anyway as I got stronger um so yeah I think it's really empowering having those performance goals well Leela did a really good um she's doing a healthy weight loss series and her first one I believe was she went into talking about what the body composition is actually made of because when we hop on a scale or we have a weight in mind or even a percentage of body fat like we really need to be understanding what the body is actually made of it's made of bones and organs and muscle and fat and then we need to get really clear on where we are like Jess said what it what do we actually want to do yeah if we want to heal maybe we want to have a baby focusing on reducing our fat mass is not the goal and we just need to come back to our own truth around what we really want and then maybe we do want we're past that and we want to perform and we want to have a performance goal and I'm all for that yeah like training and performing and then we just need to switch the focus so I think there's a few parts of it let's understand what the body composition is actually made of uh, and then figure out what it is you actually want. Yeah. And, you know, all of these amazing women are here to educate you around. Okay. So if you want to look at your fertility and you want to get pregnant and you want to breastfeed, we we are going to have to carry more fat on us. Yeah. And we have to be okay with that. If we're trying to heal, the body needs to have more fat on us. Okay. If we're trying to perform, all right. Yeah. If we want to go and do an Olympic lifting competition, we may need to reduce our, you know, our body weight. And where are we doing that from? What place? Yeah. Is it from fear and scarcity or is it really from, I want to perform, I want to recover. And yeah. So I think there's probably many layers to, to that conversation. Ollie was putting a hand up. Go ahead. I'm trying not, I'm trying to not interrupt, you know, (laughs) Um, I think something that is really pertinent that I always say to clients is that, we don't, our ability to have a positive adaptation to the stress of training is not dependent on the training session. So our ability to get stronger, leaner, fitter, whatever it is that you want to achieve from your training is completely dependent on your ability to recover from that stress. So you don't get stronger, fitter, leaner in the gym. You get stronger, fitter, leaner at home when you're eating. And it's just like when Libby said, if you want to carry that much muscle, you have a responsibility to sleep enough for that muscle, a responsibility to eat enough for that muscle. And so what Amy was talking about in these videos that I was showing is I have two highly, um, two guys that are super fit and training really hard. And this is where it does get really handy for people because I work with a lot of adrenaline junkies. They're completely out of their body and they can't see what's going on. And a DEXA scan is really helpful because what these two guys were able to see from their DEXA scans, both of them, is that they're actually losing bone mass from their training. 
both of them had lost bone mineral density from their training. So, you know, sometimes it can be really appropriate. Like I agree with Amy, there's a place for not counting calories, not doing data. But for some people, like my clients are A-type personality, like I want the most out of life. I heard that I should just train really hard and, you know, fasting is super popular in the corporate world and all this kind of like A-type personalities love that shit, right, because it fuels adrenaline. So I find these things like DEXA scans and counting calories and body temperature and pulse and all that stuff really um, help bring them actually back into the process and themselves and also give them the evidence like you're not recovering. You can't lie from looking at this data. So I show these two clients, my dicks, and they're like, I've lost weight. I said, yeah, cool. I can see that you've lost weight, but you're actually losing muscle mass and bone mineral density and not fat mass. Mm. I like, that's a really good point, Leela. Again, it's like context. <laughs> Everyone. Yeah. Go, 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 Libby. Um, to tag onto that as well. Another time that it's actually really cool as a coach to use a DEXA scan is with females who are petrified of weight gain and they're going mm. into a muscle building phase. This is probably the only time I actually say, go get a DEXA scan done before mm. we start this six month or whatever muscle building phase, they get it done. And then anytime, you know, stuff's going on, I'm like, just, we'll look at the DEXA scan. We'll look at the result because yes, you're gaining weight. Yes. These things are happening, but how do you know it's not muscle? And then of course, say three months down the line, we get another one done and then they can see, they can see they've put on all this extra weight. They've been working really, really hard. They've got this beautiful amount of muscle. That's really fucking hard to build. And they've just <laughs> done it. And if you just tell them, they're like, no, I don't believe you. So that's another little hot tip for anyone who's going into a muscle building phase, get a DEXA scan first. Oh, totally. And we've, we've clients like that, that their weight stays the same. Like it's not working kitty. I'm not losing weight, but I'm like, you've lost like a hundred centimeters. Look at the pictures. And they're like, Oh my God, you're right. So it's like, I think people, and again, context is important. Like for some women, the tracking isn't good. <laughs> you know, they're coming from a place of maybe severe restriction. I know Jess probably has a lot of women that come in and like, it's just about going, I think what is going to work for you? <laughs> Like, what's the best thing? I love tracking. I love data. I, Amy and I talk about it all the time. I just think it's interesting. I find it interesting. I like to go, oh, I do this and then see what happens. It's not like I'm restricting or I go, oh, I can't eat that sourdough pizza on the weekend. It's more of a data, you know, like this is telling me. But not everyone's like that. And that's also totally okay. I think it's finding a coach that is going to help you get to where you want to be in a way that I guess you want to get there. <laughs> like... You know, I know Libby and I and Leela have talked, we love tracking. You know, we track in our programs, but that's what our program is. And if women don't like that, that's okay. You know, they might need to go and do something like Jess's course where it's more, you know, mindful eating, but be mindful. Like I know, you know, Jess talks and she might be able to explain it a bit more. It's not just eating whatever the fuck you want. It's intentional eating. <laughs> but I think it's, yeah, you just need to, again, it's the context and what is right for you. Does yeah, could I say a yeah. little something on that? Yeah. So I think that there's a process to this because, and I like to bring up the masculine feminine, not to like uber spiritualize it, but our whole culture is stuck in this kind of more masculine push for this hustle, this pushing. And if you think about it, most of diet culture is very much based on like studies done of, on men or just, or honestly, things done by men. Like things that men have come up with, then they're saying like, you know, okay, women, you need to do the same thing that I've been doing. It's been working so well, but 
the female biology is completely different. And so here we have the society that is in a masculine pace. And as females, we have to first take ourselves out of this pace, which many of us have lived in our whole life, take ourselves out of this pace. And then we have to learn about our body. Most of us don't even know anything about our, our biology. Most of us don't know anything about our hormones. I mean, most women that come to me don't even know you can get pregnant when you ovulate. Like we don't know anything. We're not connected to our body. And I loved what Layla said earlier about using strength training as a way to be in her body and connect with your body. I think most women are not even there. And so, you know, and this is different for athletes. Athletes are very good at connecting with their body. They've had that mind to muscle connection. They're pushing themselves mentally. And I do think that it really gets you in your body, but most women are not in their body and they don't understand their body or they're in their body in a certain way, but they still don't understand their biology. And so there's this process of like learning about your biology so that you start to respect your biology. And then you begin to actually want to honor your biology. And then as you honor it, you start to actually pay attention because I don't know about you, but if you love somebody, you're not going to be like, keep going, keep going. Like your, your nose is bleeding and you're, you're crawling across the gravel and you're like, just keep going, you know? And so we have to really, learn to appreciate ourselves first and it really takes education first and so there is a process and I know that like two years ago four years ago I couldn't even look at macros I couldn't even look at calories I couldn't even look at a DEXA scan without feeling severe shame from Mm -hmm. what I felt and I think that's where like the emotional dealing with the emotional stuff that often comes from trauma in our childhood or whatever it is we have things that we've got to work through that we, so that we can face these numbers without judgment or shame. And we need to get to a point where, yeah, we can totally use data and we can use that to actually better ourselves. But it's not like this thing that we're like, oh my gosh, 30% body fat. Like I must get there or else, you know, we're using that as saying like, hmm, okay, like observation, honor, respect. So I just wanted to bring that up is, is there's a process to it and everyone's coming in at a different place, but I think it really does start with some, some education and some respect. And a lot of us don't respect ourselves at all. Mm, And I agree about the trauma thing. Like feel like even myself and so many women, it's like the dieting for me really stem back to low self-esteem and body image. And I wasn't enough and I was not pretty enough and I wasn't going to get a man if I was not skinny. So it was like, that's why I did all the diets. You know, I think a lot of women like have that trauma, not everyone, but a lot I think do. And it's just makes you work through that. I think before then you can get, get to a good space where you're like, okay, cool. Now I can jump into some data or whatever. But again, not everyone's the same. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think mm. on the note of what Jess was saying too, I think that especially with clients that come to me and an experience that I had in my past yet it as well is like, with cardio and like that more adrenaline focused workout, there is less of that opportunity to get inside of your body. I think certainly there can be disordered relationship with strength and performance as well. But what I see most often is that the cardio relationship, it is much easier to use that as escapism and to, you know, you go for a run to get out of your body and out of your head. And so much can happen on that run, but you don't necessarily feel it in your body where if you are training for strength and performance, it's pretty impossible to get through that session 
if you are not inside of your body, if you are not truly paying attention to form, if you are not truly paying attention to what's going on with my breath, what's going on with my pelvic floor, what's going on with eccentric, concentric, like really focusing on that strategy to build muscle. Like I see it so much more as an opportunity to be inside of your body. And again, that can get bastardized as well. But like my experience with women is that that shift to strength can allow them to use that opportunity to really connect to their biology, physiology, and like get in there and really understand it and honor it. All right. We'll keep going. Cause we've only done one question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just quickly. I just want to, um, cause we've answered some of this, but how to mitigate or anything that can be done for the luteal phase decrease in performance and recovery. Jess. Yeah. So, I mean, are, are we talking about like a shorter luteal phase or just a short cycle in general? Well, she does. Uh, there's two questions. Um, the second one actually said, I'd also love to learn about what causes short cycles. So 23, because you you mentioned like 25 days, but is anything under 25? Is that then when you're running into issues? Would well, it be yeah, I'll mush, these, I'll mush these two questions together. So yeah. a lot of times a luteal phase, um, if you're getting a decrease in, in performance during the luteal phase, first of all, we have to remember there's a lot more hormonal output the second half of the cycle. So if you are indeed ovulating, which a lot of women with short cycles are either not ovulating or they're ovulating later in the cycle and they're having a really short luteal phase, um, that is usually a stress issue and it's happening during the follicular phase. And I always like to say like, how you're living today is not just from your habits today, it's your habits of the past three months. So we have to really remember that if we're having a bad day today, or we're having a bad cycle this month, it's an accumulation of habits. And it's an, an ovulation is a very high energy, um, I guess we could say activity for the body. It requires a lot of moving parts and a lot of nutrients to bring that egg to fruition and to actually ovulate. And then the body is now shifting all its resources to getting that egg fertilized, hopefully in the next 24 hours. And then also making sure we're getting enough progesterone produced. So if that egg does get fertilized, the corpus luteum can make enough progesterone until the placenta takes over, usually like at week around week 10. So we have this like, I think a lot of women don't realize all of this is going on. And we're just like, Oh, man, our performance is low, or Oh, man, like, my cycle sucks this month, or it's just short this month. But what your body's telling you is you didn't have the resources or the energy to optimize your ovulation, and therefore, the, you know, succeeding days and weeks after that. So I would look at it as an energy issue, maybe a calorie issue, but more of a nutrient issue, um, making sure you're getting the nutrients that you need. And then also the recovery from stress, because we're all about exercise and strength training, but like all these great women have been talking about, it's like, you have, that is a responsibility. And if we're not making a, a point to recover from that, then our body is just living in this constant depleted state. Okay, cool. Um, what should we expect from our bodies when we change from crazy restrictions to more nourishing tactics? Do we gain weight at first while our body heals? Do you want to answer this one, Meg? Yeah. 
Um, so uh, it, it, again, it depends on everybody. Everyone's a little bit different. Um, I like to talk about metabolic adaption. And so basically if you're under eating, your metabolic system will adapt to that. And so if we start to, you know, again, this is not everybody's story as we know with these other women on the podcast, but many times, especially for the clients that I see, what will happen is they've started at a calorie restrictive um, maybe eating, I don't know, anywhere from like 12 to 1200 calories, even less. And initially they start to lose weight, their metabolic system will adapt. And um, from there, there gets to a point where they keep having to restrict, 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 and, and their body's not losing weight anymore. It goes into that protective mode as, as Jess was talking about earlier. And so in, in that protective mode, mode, meaning putting on weight. So um, usually what will happen is that in a state of healing, there is, and again, most of the women that I'm seeing that we're having to do something called a reverse diet, meaning we are having to incorporate more foods and slowly. And sometimes I will do macro counting. I, I started out as a macro coach. So sometimes I'll do macro counting, but not everybody. It's actually a huge trigger for me. So I like to see where I'm at, but I'm never, um, I'm always just making sure I'm not under eating is really how I approach it. But if we're, if we're in a state of healing, we have to work on getting our metabolic system to adapt to eating at the caloric intake and the demands and getting in these nutrients that our bodies need, uh, needs to just either live our life or live our life and train and get through a stressful season. And, um, just again, living our life as just said earlier, like the, trials and tribulations are gifted to all of us. We will all go through it and we have to have the ability to um, uh, adapt along the way. So it, to answer this person's question, will you, will you gain weight? Potentially. I usually see it in three different ways. So sometimes people will, um, the more they eat, their actually, their body walk should be like, this is great. This is what I needed. And they'll actually start losing weight. The, the more that they eat and they'll start feeling better right away. Um, my case was I came from a very, uh, my, the very last thing that I did was, uh, trying to lose weight for an Olympic, Olympic lifting meet. And so the, I, at that point I could not lose any more weight. There was nothing else I could do. And so in order to heal, I actually put on weight and I was not intentionally doing anything. I was trying to, you know, focus on what can I do to get my period back. So I was really focusing on the nutrients. Um, but my body did put on weight. I put on about 20 pounds total. Um, and then I see other women where they really only put on like five pounds and, and they're just kind of stay stagnant here and there. So to say, do you have to put on weight to heal? No, not necessarily, but we do have to get the metabolic system to adapt to a higher caloric need. And the reason being is because we need the nutrients. We need these vitamins and we need these minerals that make our body run so that we're able to do these things that we're on earth to do, which is be a mom and, you know, run our business and you know, do things that make us happy and live life and go on vacations and all those things. Um, I didn't really see where that question was. So I hope, did I answer that? Was there more? No, no. What do you, because often I get this, I get messages, I'm eating pro-metabolically, I've just gained like, I'm just saying 20 kilos, you know, do you guys think sometimes I find this that, and again, I think it is no right or wrong, but some women don't track and they obviously they've been eating like green vegetables and just, you know, boring shit food. And all of a sudden they're like, yay, I can eat ice cream and, you know, like all these amazing yeah. foods and they eat too much too quickly and they gain so much weight. Or not enough protein. 
I actually see more women that are eating potentially enough carbohydrates, but not enough protein. It's, mm. it is, it, that's what I tend to see more is that we're, we're so excited to be able to eat these foods that may not be bad for us. That's like what diet culture is telling us. And so they go very heavy and enjoying these foods, which is wonderful, but they're not keeping up with the protein intake. And throughout our cycle, our hormones demand different protein needs, especially if we are training on top of that. So in my case, yes, I do see people overindulging. They get very excited and um, we're not necessarily balancing our meals and macros the way that we should be, which is just you know, even looking at your plate without having to count macros and, and put that together uh, of a protein, carbon, fat. But in my case, I typically see women overdoing are not overdoing carbohydrates necessarily, but underdoing protein. And by making that adjustment, their body actually starts to feel safer and heal. And, and as a result, blood sugar balances and, and things like that. And the inflammation goes down and, and whatnot. So this could be where the tracking would potentially be beneficial. So as you could see making sure I'm getting enough protein, getting the macro balance right for my body and gradually increase if, if you can track, like you said. Yeah, so. if you can track, I think that can be a really wonderful tool for a very short period of time. Get familiar with it. See what it looks like to eat and on a regular basis of like what your body's demands are. And then um, and then if you're in a place where like your body is really healthy, I mean, you, you can achieve weight loss. It is okay to a healthy aesthetics. It's a, it's a scary topic to talk about when you're trying to just be like, guys, don't worry about diet culture. Let's worry about health. But there also is a time where it is okay to achieve weight loss and it is okay to have that goal. And as Amy talked about before, worrying, you know, if you want to get ready for an Olympic like me, or if you want to do a performance, I mean, we're going to have different demands when we understand the quantity that our body needs and adjusting to that, you know, that's okay. Knowledge is powerful. We just want to be empowered by it and not taken down. And again, for me, I teach this, I've come from this background, but it's still way too triggering where I'm just not comfortable. I'd rather just loosely intuitively eat. I don't know if that answer. What do you think, Libby? I'd like to hear your thoughts on tracking. And um, I think that I'm actually kind of annoyed by how the fitness industry has made macronutrients connected to eating disorders and that like I've got a 14 year old daughter and I've made a point from when she was probably nine, 10 years old because they don't bloody teach this in school, which annoys me to teach her about macronutrients. Like this is more important than maths. Like this is a protein. This is a fat. This is a carb. We don't want just carbs and fats because that's not a balanced meal. We don't want. So like from that angle, it's like macronutrients and tracking doesn't necessarily need to be correlated with eating disorders, but it, but it is and it's really, really sad because of how the fitness industry has done this. And they literally have made it all about dieting when it doesn't have to be about dieting. I mean, the only reason I would track right now is to make sure I'm eating enough when I'm training hard. Um, with my daughter, I'm teaching her. I'm not making it a hush hush. We don't talk about macros. I'm like, you know what? I want you to balance your macronutrients. You have acne right now. You're not getting the right nutrients. We need to do this. And I'm teaching her from a teacher's perspective. And my older sister is a teacher and she's also kind of high up. And I'm trying to get her to bring this into the schools, like teach them about what's a protein, what's a carb, what's a fat, like get away from this whole, you know, diet culture type of thing and really come at it from a different perspective because knowledge really is power. And it's sad that it's been made into this and it is triggering for people. And that's something that I can't help. I can't change that. But maybe if they had started from a younger age, learning about actually why we want to be thriving and healthy in life. And these are the foods that are going to help us rather than the fucking diet culture, fitness industry, bastardizing it. That's 
I, I like I like that Libby because I I when I first started premier eating I really had to switch my mindset because I'd always track to restrict but now it's tracking for optimization and because I'm the same like if I don't eat enough I'm shit like I don't sleep like I know I'm like instantly so for me like I really sort of like semi track every day to go are you hitting enough food because like, you, I get busy like, you know, this podcast will go to who knows when and then you've missed some meals and whatever. It's like, I think I agree with that too. It's trying to switch your mindset to it's an optimization and help to help you to educate you as well. Sorry, Adine, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, I agree with Libby completely. And I've had the exact same experience because in, you know, I was working in the conventional fitness industry forever and got really upset about that approach. And I have a three-year-old daughter who I have taught about macros just almost accidentally. Like I didn't realize I wasn't being super intentional with it. I just teach her what's on her plate. And now she's kind of like weaponized it against me where like, if I give her (laughs) eggs for breakfast, she's like, I need a carb mom. (laughs) So it is so powerful to give three-year-olds that information and it is totally doable. And to understand how this fuels us and how it gets us better at the things that we do throughout the day. So I'm with you, Libby. And I love that you're teaching her that. And I think what you guys are saying, which is so different than how it was, is used in, Mm. did you say conventional? I don't know how, like conventional, is that how you said fitness? But in the fitness industry that I grew up in was that you guys are, all macros are, are protein, carbs, and fat. When women hear macros from my point of view, when I first heard it, it was like, Again, it, all I heard, as Kitty said, was restrictive. And yeah. that's how it was used. I was counting my almonds with my cold tilapia on an airplane so that I could get my correct macros in. And if I didn't get it in, I took a shot of olive oil because I was 20 grams under fat. And so what I love that you guys are saying is that macros isn't a, isn't a scary word and it's not even a diet tool. It is quite literally macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fat that we are intaking. And that is not scary to do, (laughs) to, to, to know and understand. And I've seen, I'm not saying this is the case with everyone, but I've seen some really dramatic changes in women in our program. But this lady came the other day, she's working with Craig. She was eating 35 grams of protein. So as soon as he just shifted her macros and she's eating the foods that we all recommend, she was she did this bloody video in our page and like nearly like she was crying, you know, just something so simple. I think you know, yeah, it's um, yeah, okay, cool. We've got some good different viewpoints here. That's good. Um, okay, let's go on to the next one: training, perimenopause, and menopause. So, Amy, this is for you to talk about. Um, one thing that I can't find many answers to is how to utilize all of this while dealing with peri. Men- perimenopause and menopause ideas tips progesterone use etc for this the help with this phase in life yeah all of this stuff is already hard enough and challenging and mysterious and then we enter perimenopause and menopause the roller coaster ride just changes <laughs> um okay uh where do we start it's a big topic uh let's start if you're going through like the perimenopause or menopause transition There are, um, you know, I work with a lot of women in their 40s and 50s and they're really stuck with their training. Mm. Uh, And what I, two of the most common complaints that come up during this transition is changes to body sleep patterns and changes to body composition. Those are the two biggest things I hear over and over and over again. Uh, So what's going on? 
yeah, what's actually happening during this transition and how does it impact our training? Well, in our cycle years, we have this exposure to estrogen. I guess I'll start by saying, you know, perimenopause is just like a day. I mean, uh, menopause is just like a day. It marks the day that's like been a year since our last period. What most women experience is perimenopause. And that can go from like two to four years up to like maybe eight or nine years before we even enter into uh, into menopause. So they're two different phases. Uh, And when we're going through that perimenopause phase, what's actually happening is that progesterone is declining and estrogen goes on a roller coaster ride. So hang on a second, Amy. Stop there. So what you're saying is that, so all the doctors out there and all these people are saying that, you know, it's the fact that you've got low estrogen, that you've got all these symptoms. So that's not true. So when we're in perimenopause, what's happening, what starts to happen as we enter this is that progesterone starts to go on a decline and initially estrogen goes on a roller coaster ride. So Mm. it goes up and down. And then when we get closer to menopause, so closer to that 12 months since our last period, estrogen also starts to decline. Mm. And then- why is it that, it that all the doctors then recommend? I just know that what women are going to be asking is why do they recommend estrogen to take estrogen during this perimenopausal stage and the HRT that has a lot of estrogen? Yeah, great question. I'm not sure why they're, why they're the recommending. Because they don't uh, know. <laughs> yeah, it. Um, yeah, I potentially, I don't know if they're doing it in perimenopause or if they're doing it when women get to menopause, but... You know, when we're going through perimenopause and we start to get into menopause, so say we're like right near the end and we're in menopause, what's happening is that we had, you know, estrogen in our cycle years and estrogen helps us maximize our ability to use fat. So then when both estrogen and progesterone decline through menopause, we can be in a greater catabolic state a lot of the time. Uh, And then this, in addition to, we can be a little bit more sensitive to carbohydrates when we get into this phase, Uh, our protein, our muscle protein synthesis is, um, you know, also decreased. So this can lead to this increase in abdominal fat, which is this whole thing around my changing my body composition is because now we don't have the estrogen that we had before in our cycle years to help us, you know, oxidize and use fat. Uh, And uh, we're in a more catabolic state. So like Jess was saying before, when we had the question around, you know, the changes in physiology in the second half of our cycle, well, progesterone's higher. And when progesterone's higher, from a physiological perspective, we can be in a greater catabolic state. But then when we lose our hormones in menopause, we're in this greater catabolic state a lot of the time. So protein becomes really key. Uh, And there's like three key things that I think we really need to focus on when we're going into perimenopause and menopause is it comes back to the metabolism. So strengthening the metabolism uh, and everything that we do in our work is, do I have a good foundation? If I'm entering into this phase, which is a roller coaster ride and my body's already stressed and then I have to deal with the hormonal changes, it could be a little bit of a hard roller coaster ride. But if I've done the work to strengthen the metabolism, I'm going to set myself up to to support myself in this in this transition. So that's the first one is, do I have a strong metabolism? The second one is when we enter menopause, uh, bone density and muscle mass decline. 
because estrogen helps build our bones and maintain our bone mineral density and our hormones play an important part in our muscles. So when we're in menopause, we need to make sure that we're strength training. You know, a perimenopause or menopausal body responds really well to strength training compared to long, slow endurance, um, high intensity training. Then the last one is get enough protein. You know, if we're in a greater catabolic state in this phase of our life, we really need to make sure we're eating enough protein. Can you comment or does anyone else also want to comment on uh, women supplementing with progesterone during this phase? I know it's not training, but it's in there. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I can comment on it a little bit. Um, can you guys hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so what a lot of people, and I'm sure Meg would want to, jump in on this too, because we've been learning a lot about it. But once women go through menopause, they stop having a monthly bleed as well. Mm. And um, this really leads to iron accumulating very quickly. And iron, if, if you don't know, is as it reacts with oxygen, and it goes unchecked, it will cause oxidative stress or inflammation. Um, And this is probably one of the biggest metabolic disasters. And so this is why a lot of women, oftentimes the minute they stop bleeding, they start to have all these problems, whether it's arthritis, lots of autoimmune type issues, they'll gain 15 to 20 pounds within a year. Um, And a lot of people will blame it on the hormones, but in reality, it's oftentimes actually what's going on with the minerals. And um, so progesterone supplementation sometimes can be helpful to mitigate symptoms. But at the end of the day, like Amy said, is you you really have to focus on strengthening the metabolism. Um, And I would say really, really focusing on minerals to really mitigate a lot of uh, the what's going to happen as you're in this more catabolic state, you're going to have higher needs for magnesium and sodium and potassium and vitamin C and things that actually calm the adrenals down. And then you might also benefit from occasionally donating blood to get rid of some iron that you're accumulating because you're no longer having that monthly bleed. Cool. Um, I'd like to add on to that. Um, Yeah, I agree with what Jess said. um, And Amy said, uh, I think additionally too, is, you know, the idea behind perimenopause is that we're no longer able to make progesterone. Uh, so why is that? And usually, you know, we can no longer make progesterone because we are not able to create enough energy to sustain those eggs. And, you know, a, a good cycle is going to, fertility is going to require a lot of energy. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I just wanted to jump in quickly and talk about Saturate Skincare as I've had a lot of you messaging me and asking me when it's going to be here. So the update is we've signed off on the formulation, but we are now working through finding suitable bottles, which is proving far more challenging than we thought, given what's going on in the world. We're hoping to have everything finalized in the next few months. For those of you who are new to following me, Satre is a company that myself and Emma Scaracus, who's, I guess, probably more well-known as a nutrition coach. And if you don't follow her, go and follow her now. So we co-founded this company about 18 months ago, or maybe it's coming up two years. Time just flies when you're having fun. But 
We did it because we couldn't find any good skincare and makeup that was free of PUFAs and other nasties. And you might be wondering why it matters what you put on your skin. So PUFAs or polyunsaturated fats are very unstable. And when you put them on the skin, they're exposed to heat and oxygen, making them break down even faster. Plus, if the product contains traces of iron or other metals, which many foundations do, this will catalyze a faster breakdown and conversion to toxic materials, some of which are actually absorbed through the skin skin and into the bloodstream. So this is exactly why we decided to make our own skincare and makeup range, which is going to be free from iron oxide, silicones, polyunsaturated fats, titanium oxide, aluminium, and mineral oil. You can head to our website, which is www.saturae.com.au and sign up to our mailing list to be notified of when these amazing products will be launched. So let's get back to this amazing episode. By the time, you know, we, I think what I've seen amongst my clients is uh, early early perimenopause, a lot of early perimenopause. I recently worked with someone that was, you know, age 40 and Mm -hmm. that's really early. And I see a lot of that. And um, what happens a lot of the time, at least pretty frequently with (laughs) some of my clients is that we start to work on their nutrition and to really build back their vitality uh, in terms of their nutrients, minerals, all that good stuff, their fat soluble vitamins, which are also so important for fertility. And we often reverse those symptoms and all of a sudden they start feeling normal again. And actually they've kind of put a pause button or, you know, prolonged their fertility a little bit. Um, Oh gosh. So I was going to say something else. Oh yes. Um, one other thing too. So, you know, nutrition is really, really important and how you take care of yourself is really important and influential in when you're going to experience perimenopause and menopause. Um, but also keep in mind that the adrenals are what's going to have to pick up the slack after the ovaries, after you complete menopause. And so, Oftentimes too, we've spent a whole, our whole lives very stressed. And especially if we're going through menopause really early, we've obviously experienced a lot of stress. And so, uh, you know, they, they do say it, it can be whenever your mother um, went through menopause, it's likely going to be when you go through menopause, but I, I disagree. <laughs> um, I think that's likely because maybe you have had the same habits or similar mm. lifestyle. Uh, but I think you can totally have a different trajectory than your family has or the women in your family. Um, that said, the adrenals are what has to pick up the slack. And if we've had a really stressful time uh, leading up to this, we're going to have a really bad time. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so really taking care of your adrenals, lowering the stress, focusing on those nutrients that also support the adrenals. And like just said, minerals, whole food, vitamin C, um, all that good stuff is really going to hopefully help make the transition easier so that when the ovaries, you know, are their job is finished, the adrenals can start picking up the slack and in, in a smooth transition rather than, you know, like, oh my gosh, holding on for dear life kind of thing. We've had women in our program thought that like in their fifties thought that they had gone through their in menopause and then they get their periods back. Yeah. They don't like it. Amazing. Like, oh, it. really? Yeah, I know <laughs> because they don't understand. <laughs> they don't understand. Obviously once they get more educated, they're like, Oh, this is annoying, but I'm like, no, it's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. The progesterone is amazing. And, you know, just, 
you're experience a lot, experiencing a lot less oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, totally agree. Yeah. I just want to add to Lauren and Jess's uh, bit around the food and the energy piece, because like PMS comes up a lot, you know, PMS stops me from training. I experience a lot of PMS and really that's just such a stress system. You know, it's so common, but it's actually not normal for us to experience severe pain and cramps and energy and heavy bleeding and all of these things that we think is really common is actually not normal. And it's the body that is having a really hard time from a, you know, from a system perspective. And the same is with perimenopause. I see it is that so many women struggle and have so many symptoms is because they're their system is so stressed. They don't have the nutrition foundation. They don't have the minerals, the energy there. And so their body is just (laughs) stressed, inflamed. And of course, all of these symptoms are going to come up. And of course, this transition is going to come earlier. It's going to come harder. We're going to be stuck upside down on that roller coaster ride, you know, and it's not going to be fun. It's the same in our cycle years. Yeah, of course, something can be going on at a deeper level, obviously, sometimes, but really, yeah, I really like like how Lauren and Jess, you brought that up because, you know, we can have an, an easier ride in this transition. And even in our cycle years, if we are strong on a system level. Yeah, really, you should then, just go yeah. through menopause yeah, and like go through perimenopause, have no issues. You should just go through it, come out the other side, like the menstrual cycle. It shouldn't be this, you know, terrible, horrendous experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and a I lot think, of I women, think- you go. Uh, I was going to say that I think training modality plays a big role as well. Like Lauren was saying that the adrenals are taking over a lot of that work. And so if women are choosing a training modality, that's going to add stress to that adrenal demand, as opposed to something like strength training that is going to contribute to shifting you back to a more anabolic place. Like you hold so much power in the training modality that you select with how that transition goes. (laughs) Cool. I think too, people don't understand, especially women, like, and I'm 40 now, so I'm thinking about this, is that muscle mass is very anti-cortisol and anti-stress. And so you want to go into menopause with enough muscle mass. And whereas I see a lot of women who go like, oh, my God, I'm 40, I'm 50, and I'm starting to put on all this weight around my waist. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do running. (laughs) or a cardio, because that's what the fitness industry says to do to lose weight. So, you know, just have a think about that. You want muscle mass, so it's anti-cortisol and less stress on the adrenals so that when your adrenals take over from the ovaries, you're in a better place if you put on strength and muscle. Sorry, I'm just reading some of the comments in the comment box, everyone. (laughs) Can I tag on to that as well? What Layla said, um, actually, Dr. Stacey Sims, because she works with like the older women, she actually says, which is really, really interesting, is that before you hit perimenopause is when you should be adding all that muscle because you've got that extra estrogen and better, you know, the hormones because estrogen is anabolic, like we don't want too much of it, but it definitely is anabolic. So you should be doing all this and building all this before you start hitting perimenopause and menopause, because obviously, it's never too late to start. So you should start at any time. But 
you're kind of putting it all in that piggy bank. So you're getting all those savings of muscle there for when you do hit that, you have it. And that's like Layla said, and all you other girls said, it's very anabolic. It will keep you going if you can do it before. So for anyone who is kind of at the, those mid thirties and they haven't started strength training, definitely now is the time just for that, you know, helping you through perimenopause and menopause and that as well. Give them the strength training everyone. Um, okay. Should I, should I train fasted? Meg and Loren. No. You should not. I would say that you shouldn't <laughs> um, because anytime we talk about not eating, we talk about stress hormones having to be present. So cortisol, anytime uh, stress hormones are present, that has a negative factor on the body. Of course, we want there to be some kind of a, we're, we're thankful for stress, uh, stressor, uh, stress hormones when we're in a stressful situation. We're thankful for their, when we're there, that they are there. But when we're looking to train and to protect our hormones and all the aspects that we talked about of what defines health earlier, earlier we do not want to uh, train fasted because it is going to bring up those stress hormones and it is going to um, uh, impact our, our hormones. I think that's like the simplest way to put it. I'm sure that Lauren, you can get into it more. I realize I'm trying to stretch out my baby bump and my tailbone <laughs> and I got myself out of breath. <laughs> so <laughs> sorry if you heard a little extra breath there. Do what you got to do, Meg. <laughs> um, yeah, I totally agree with Meg. Uh, first, there are a couple of things. Uh, you're depleted already when you wake up from sleeping. So you've already been fasting. And like Libby was saying earlier, you have a responsibility if you're going to be training to take care of your body and support your training and fasting more after that is irresponsible uh, in, in sort of that viewpoint. Um, there's also no benefits to it's in the research, no benefits to women fasting trained, uh, training fasting. <laughs> um, I know that, you know, it's definitely talked about a lot in the fitness industry because, again, as Jess was saying, a lot of the studies are done by men on men. And yes, when it comes to men, there are results for this type of training. But for women, no. And it's a huge withdrawal. So like we was saying, using that sort of bank account uh, analogy, when you wake up, you're already, you've already kind of like withdrawn money from your bank account. And if you train fasted, you're going to withdraw a huge amount more from your bank account. You really need to put more money back into that bank account before you withdraw again, because training is a stress, especially if you're not supporting your body. It doesn't have to be as big of a stress, but that's, again, it goes back to how responsible you are with your, your training and your body. And so a couple of ways that it can affect your hormones is number one, it can desensitize uh, progesterone receptors to progesterone. And so if we do this very often and chronically, we can start to have period problems because even though, even if we're making enough progesterone, uh, this, is why, this is why it goes back to testing. Testing is not always the most accurate way to assess um, health. It's really how you feel, all that good stuff. That's another conversation. But, um, you know, your progesterone receptors can become unresponsive in the presence of adrenaline, because if you're 
forcing your body to create blood sugar, which it's going to have to after you've woken up for slept for eight hours, uh, it's not going to respond to that progesterone. Um, number two, leptin can also affect luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. LH and FSH, which are also involved highly in the reproductive process. And if there's too much leptin, which is a hormone produced by our fat cells. So our fat is like Jess was talking about, it's there for a purpose. It's also metabolically active and it produces hormones that help us figure out when we should, when we're hungry and when we're full and satisfied. Um, and so this can also throw off those hormones, uh, which again, kind of impact other hormones. There's like a cascade effect. Uh, and we also burn through more minerals, uh, more vitamins uh, pretty easily. And therefore we need to also be responsible if we're going to train like this, replenishing them, although it's really difficult to make it up. Um, and we also become less resilient. And over time, you know, if you start, if you train like that and you start to get injuries, that's usually the first sign that this training method is not working for you. Um, uh, aside from things like PMS or other symptoms that come up. Um, but, you know, once you start to get hurt, then it's a clear sign that this kind of thing is not working for you, which I have myself have done. I trained fasted for, well, maybe like two, three years. And <laughs> I really you learned do. the hard way. Yeah. Now I, now I think to myself, I'm like, how the hell did I get up, drink the black coffee, a black, black coffee, and then catch the bus into the gym? And I'd be doing an hour of HIIT training and then an hour of strength training. But back then, obviously, I just did shit strength training. And then I'd drink, then I'd have a quarter of a cup of oats with a scoop of protein powder with water in a shaker. It's crazy. Yeah. The more stress hormones that we produce, the less anabolic we are. So the less able we are to build muscle. So over time, yeah, you might lose weight because stress, you know, stress hormones are going to increase your um, heart rate. They're going to eventually they're going to put you in a survival state for sure. Um, but stress hormones can burn calories. Um, but you'll, you may find that your body composition starts to shift towards the more fat retaining kind, um, and you'll lose muscle, retain more fat. And mm-hmm. so that in the, in the sense of metabolism and metabolic training, training facet is not very beneficial for that. And I think the best line I've ever heard was, um, I, I'm sure y'all have heard of Stacey Sims, her book Roar. She has, I think it's somewhere in her title or somewhere she says, we're not small men. I'm like, that's literally the best thing I've ever seen, heard, because especially when we're talking about training, like women are a thousand percent, not small men. I think we know that, um, you know, we get our periods, right. Hopefully. So I think that's the best way when we're, when we're, when we're looking at this information, we really want to filter it through like, is this really serving a woman's body or is this done by a man's as, as we've talked about, but I want, I, I hope that's really clear that any research that you hear, it's most, especially with facet, it's most likely done by a man uh, or on a man and versus women and, and, and considering the long-term effects of um, their hormonal cycle. And as Amy was talking about and and menopause and, you know, how that um, can be you know, a contributing factor to a quote, bad menopause and going through hot flashes and things like that, that is a stressor that adds into a stress bucket, right? And we have a stress, we have a little bucket when we're born and then stressors just pile on top and then we see it into symptoms. And most often it's later on in our life. And I, and I just think that quote is so, so special and powerful because it's, thank God we're not small men. We're a little bit better, right? Yes, Layla. 
Are you so I'm like the good student. I was a real nerd at school and I was always put my hand up and sit in the front row. Um, I guess I want to add to that is that to be able to get your most out of training, you need a certain amount of participation from your nervous system. And so if you want to do lifting or, um, you know, like, for instance, one of the ways that I would test with a client whether they're strong enough is when you when you're stressed, you significantly, significantly lose your ability to grip properly okay right so your grip strength goes down massively so your ability when you're in a non-field state is to irradiate so to wind up enough fascial tension in the lift to be able to use as much muscle mass as possible so that you can push in as much weight as you want to push so that you can get the effect of building as much muscle or get stronger or faster or whatever you want to do is not possible in a state where you're not fueled to do so because your nervous system has, you know, your nervous system needs so much carbohydrate to be able to switch on and tell your body what to do. And we'll come back to this when we talk about injury, because this is why I see a lot of people get injured is the ability to fuel yourself. So your nervous system can be switched on enough to be able to perform the sport that you're actually wanting to do. And of course, if you don't have enough glucose in the tank, so you wake up in the morning, there's no glycogen left, your body is going to burn, break down muscle to make glycogen to fuel you for the exercise session. So you're actually just totally cancelling out the exercise session if your purpose is to build muscle, which it should be like we've just discussed. That's all I want to say. <laughs> build, ladies, build. When I first met Craig, he's like, Stop destroying the body you have with all these cardio and restrictive diets. He's like, build the body you want. Do some strength training. Eat some more bloody food. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, yeah, good one. Yeah, it makes sense, you know. Also, the high intensity, um, like for example, because I come from being a CrossFit coach for many years, but that particular, which we'll talk about when we talk about the energy systems, but that high intensity functional training, that high intensity, you know, CrossFit metcons, all that, that literally cannot be fueled by anything but either glycogen or worst case scenario protein you cannot fuel that type of training with fat so for all of you girls out there who are doing high intensity training fasted just know that you're either if you don't have any glycogen in your body you're burning your muscle because you can't fuel that like it's just doesn't work that's not how the energy systems work you can fuel lower intensity like walking with fat um but you can't fuel high intensity training with um fat so if you think you're doing these crossfit sessions on an empty stomach you're just working against yourself so, yeah, that's a really good point, Layla. Yeah, I don't know how I used to do it. Like, just even performance-wise, like you, Libby and I and um, Layla were talking about it. She was just saying, like, she gets a lot of cro- crossfitters and they're just eating fuck all and then they start to eat more and they're like, oh, wow, I'm just performing so much better. It's sort of like, you know, like now because we've been doing it for so long, you sort of think, oh, no shit, Sherlock. But then I think, oh, well, that was you seven years ago. You know, you were getting up. <laughs> Just, I think once you get into this and start to do it, you're like, the, all the light bulbs go off and you're like, wow. I'm sure your clients say the same thing. They're like, how did we do that for so long? Yeah, but it's good. We're, we're saving lots of women, ladies. We're saving the world one woman at a time. <laughs> yes. Okay. I feel like I need a bathroom break, but I'll ask the next question and mute myself. Does anyone else need a bathroom break or a quick break? Should we pause or should we keep going? Everyone's good? Okay, we'll keep going. Um, okay, so next up is Jess and Libby. How can I tell if I'm recovering from my training? I mean, I could say the basics. Obviously, I got to take these off. Um, I could say the basics 
but Libby is the expert on this one. I mean, I would say like from a hormonal perspective, just simple things like paying attention to your body, everyone responds to stress differently, but a lot of times people have a hard time sleeping. Um, I've seen a lot of women start shedding more hair. I think that's like a really big one. If you start to shed more hair, you either need more fuel or you're the training you're doing is not working for you. Um, sometimes it's like, mood issues. Like you're just, you feel your mood going up and down and up and down. Um, maybe your, your brain is foggy because your whole nervous system re relies on glucose to functions, including your brain. So if you're feeling like you're constantly stuck in this like fight or flight state, then you're probably, you either need to up your fuel or you need to change your training or you're just not recovering from your training or prioritizing recovery. Um, but those are kind of like the things, like if you're just not feeling right, obviously if your metabolic markers are, are messed up, but I think that there are more like specific uh, signs that you're not recovering or things that you can do to recover better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think for me um, with my clients, I like to use temperatures. If your temperature has plummeted, um, obviously sometimes it will plummet for about 24 hours, but I like to see it come back up after 24 hours. If it stays for 48 hours or longer, that's usually a sign that not necessarily your training's not working, but your recovery is not working. So it's not always, I think people misunderstand it to say that their training's always not working, but it's oftentimes, no, your training is probably fine. You just need to learn how to recover better and build that resilience and build that recovery base, which is what I tend to do a lot with my clients. Um, another thing I wanted to tag on to what Jess said is that I feel like in the pro-metabolic space, we are, tend to be very scared of stressors because of the histories that people tend to have. So there is a time and a place to add stressors into your life. And initially, you're not going to necessarily recover well from a brand new stressor. And that's completely fine. You don't have to freak out because you just started training and your recovery, your temperature has gone down and you can't recover. That's not actually a sign that you need to stop. That's a sign that you need to build your resilience to that stress. This is, of course, assuming you're not doing anything completely crazy, right? Like you're just gradually adding in the training again. Yes, there needs to be some acceptance of the fact that you are not going to be this completely recovered person the next day after you do your very first training session. And I think that's where a lot of this, these issues with people come in because they freak out after one training session and they see their recovery has dropped down. It's like, yeah, well, it's a brand new thing for your body. Like, I mean, take for example, carbs, when you're adding carbs back in, if you've done keto for years and years, you're not just going to add carbs in and feel amazing right away. There's, there's these growing pains and it's the same with training. You know, you need to obviously take a look at all your recovery aspects, but then also be gentle with yourself and be okay with having a little bit of a stress response, because when it comes to training, you are putting a stress response on yourself. That is the whole point of adaptation. But what you want is to be able to recover quickly from that stress response. And that's where you want to work on things like your recovery. But back to the question, I would say temperatures, if your temperatures plummet for more than 24 hours. Um, after yeah, maybe, can I just ask, sorry, like how much, yeah. like how much uh, do you like to see? Yeah. So I tend to see, I mean, again, from, I speak in Celsius, but it's generally like for me personally, mine don't, they're very stable. So they don't ever drop after training, but I'll, I use other methods, which I'll talk about. But for my clients, it's often like there'll be 36.8 and it will drop to like 36.4, 36.3. If it's just like a couple, because obviously with the whole luteal phase and that it's going to, you know, it's going to yeah, so depend on which phase but you're it, in. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. a pretty big drop that I tend to see. So if you're, you know, you're just dropping like that one, you know, from 36.8 to 36.7, that's not an issue. It's more, it's a very clear drop, if that makes sense. So you can tell. 
Um, with that's one really important thing. I also use heart rate variability, which I won't go into in depth here, but basically that is, it's not your heart rate, but it's another pointer. And if that plummets as well, so I like to keep, I like to see it quite consistent. There'll be little ups and downs, but if it's plummeting a lot from your baseline, that is like um, experts say that's the number one way for athletes to tell whether they're not recovered. So that's something that I personally use a lot. And then the other thing is also your heart rate. So if you do a hard training session and for hours after that training session, your heart rate is very elevated from your baseline. So let's say your baseline 68 and your heart rate is like, you know, in the eighties and nineties, and it's just not coming down. That's a big sign that you are staying in that fight or flight. So what you want to look for again is to try and get that heart rate down as quick as you can after you train back to baseline. So for all these things, when it comes to recovery, the goal is to go from that fight or flight state, that stressed state, which you have to be in to get any sort of adaptation to go from that into the rest and digest state as quickly as possible. And when you can build this recovery base using different tactics, you can actually help your body get into that state quicker, which then facilitates everything. So then it's not so much about that training session, but it's more about how quickly you can recover from it because that's when you start building. That's when your body actually, you know, the tissue growth happens in that state, all these anabolic things happen in that recovery state. And that's where we want to get our body. But if you're, if you're struggling to recover, you're basically not getting into that recovery state. So you're staying in that fight or flight state. So those are just some of the signs that I like using. And then of course, all the ones that just said sleep, if your sleeps, you know, a lot of people tend to have a really poor night's sleep mm-hmm. um, the first night after a really intense session. That's okay. Don't stress, don't freak out, just mm-hmm. keep an eye on it. Right. So I tend to then I do intermittent intensity. So I'll do like a lighter session the next day or something else rather than you're not going to go back it up with another high intensity session. But if you're struggling a lot, you'll see, you know, your sleep will drop, your moods will drop, all these things will drop. And then you're like, okay, maybe it's not working for me. But if you're just starting, give it time. Don't. Would you would you say, Libby, too, that like a lot of women go from zero to a hundred? Yes. Like they go too quickly and they're like, oh, fuck. Whereas if they just maybe yeah. increased a bit slower. Yeah, 100%. So just again, using that carbs analogy, you're not going to go from zero carbs to 300 carbs a day. Um, So definitely slowly increase the training and also increase the intensity because I find the intensity is what a lot of people struggle with when it comes to recovery. So intensity is completely relative to you. So, you know, you might only be able to lift 60 kilos for one rep max, but if you're doing all of your sets close to that one rep max, that's really hard for you. Whereas for me, it will be like a walk in the park. So it's just so relative to you. But it's if you're doing a lot of your sessions, either close to a one rep max intensity or like pushing to failure or on the other hand, with high intensity interval training, if you're going into that anabolic state, which is we'll talk about that later. But that's really high intensity where you're breathless. That's also high intensity. So if you're doing those um, straight away right off the bat from nothing from zero to that, yeah, you're going to have problems with recovery. So, again, that gradual approach and also covering all the bases, not just focusing solely on strength training, but building bases everywhere is really, really helpful as well, in my opinion. Um, and then, yeah. Oh, sorry, keep going, keep going, keep going. I was just going to say the last thing, which is kind of obvious, but people don't realize is how can I tell if I'm recovering from my training? Well, is your training working for you? Are you getting stronger? Are you getting in a result? Are you getting fitter if you're doing fitness training? Are you getting the results that you're training for if you're busting your ass at the gym? If you're not getting those results, no, it's not working for you because you're not training just for fun completely. Like there's a result that everyone wants to get from their training. So that's a really good question to ask yourself as well. You look back over the last month, have I gotten any results? Is my training working for me? So it sounds like Libby then, because I think a lot of women do this and I used to do this too, is like you can't 
train really hard all the time. Yeah. You can't go every single day training really high intensity because you're not giving your body any time to recover. Yeah, 100%. So I really, I'm a big fan of what I call intermittent intensity for me personally. Um, For example, like I think everyone should build a strength base and to build a strength base, you need to definitely lift in those close to failure ranges at some point, but I wouldn't be doing that every day. Um, I also think you should have an aerobic base and that's not this high intensity type of breathless aerobic work. That's basically just building your work capacity. So if you have zero work capacity, you're not going to be able to get into that rest and digest state. And this is what a lot of people, they get it wrong because everyone's, you know, anti-cardio and that, but it's all about the purpose for doing what you're doing. If you have a purpose to build your aerobic base so that it can facilitate recovery, because literally the rest and digest state is driven by the aerobic, the oxidative um, energy system. It's not driven by the anaerobic. So if you have zero aerobic base, you can only get into that anaerobic from any little bit of effort you put in, you're gonna struggle massively to recover. Um, you're going to struggle to recover between your sets. When you're doing strength training, you're going to, your heart rate's going to stay elevated for a long time. You're also going to struggle to recover between sessions. So I like to build that base at the same time as I build their strength work. Um, I think that's a big missing key. Um, and people often talk about specificity and it's all you need. It's like, yeah, specificity works as much as you can recover from it. If you're so specific, cause you want to build your deadlift up that all you do is deadlift your back is completely fucked and you can't recover, that specificity isn't working for you. So it can only work as long as you can recover from it. So that's why having a nice initial base across the board is really, really good. And then specialize, then do what you need to do. Then, you know, become a power lifter, do whatever you need to do. Can I just ask you a question? Because this probably links into the, like it's coming up this question about, because I think women always get this on my post. They're like, is being fit good? So if I'm really fit and my heart rate is low, like they always comment going, oh, but the doctors say that, oh, you've got a really low resting heart rate of 50. That's really good. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily good either. I think, again, that comes to an extreme. So I don't look at a marathon runner and think, man, they're so healthy. I want to be like them. But I also don't look at, you know, Ronnie Coleman, who's in a wheelchair from years of only ever lifting weights and think I want to be like him. I don't look at Charles Polican, who died of a heart attack, like multitudes of other bodybuilders have, who I can, you know, not name names, but lots of them have. And I don't want to be like them either. I want to have that base. So there's definitely, yeah, I wouldn't, if you're, if you're in that, in the fifties and forties, like I have heaps of clients, their heart rate's just in the forties from years and years and years of being an athlete. I mean, mine personally, in all honesty, it's not in the seventies, it's in the sixties. I'm not, I'm okay with that. My temps are again, across the board, like all my other markers are good. So I don't stress about that. Um, That comes with the part of being an active individual, being an athlete in that. But I wouldn't say that a low heart rate's healthy at all. That just means that your body's being super efficient with your energy. And we don't want that either. It's, mm. it's just becoming way more efficient. So. Mm. so I feel like that's a real common misconception. They're like, oh, but the, the really low heart rate's good. You know, they say that it being really fit, you know, is really yeah. good. So that's good. Um, and it, again, it's the extremes, right? Yeah. Like Ronnie Commons taking shitloads of steroids. Yeah. Like that's what about in a wheelchair now? Like, yeah, that's not healthy. Like, getting injured. I I think any athletic extreme sport probably. Like, if we were talking about optimal health, any extreme sport is good. But again, like you say, like, no, no, this is. I'm not going to say their names, but I follow them on Instagram, and they're all about like. Like one of them messaged me one day saying, "Oh, you shouldn't deadlift because it's too stressful." I'm like, "Well, look, 
yeah, probably maybe deadlifting heavy is stress on the body, but I really enjoy it. Like I'm okay with like, I don't want to live and, you know, maybe I'm a bit too stressed in work sometimes, fuck, you know, but it's like, I enjoy our businesses. I like living this life. You know, Craig and I talk about this a lot. And it's, I think, accepting and going, well, what am I, like you just said, Libby, I'm fine with having my heart rate like that. You know, I'm fine with sometimes having to go, oh, fuck, you need to pull the reins back, Kitty, you've been working too much. Because I enjoy our business and I enjoy training heavy and I enjoy, you know, like I don't want to live a completely stress-free life because to me I'd be fucking miserable. But, again, I'm not saying that's for everyone, but it's about, isn't it really, accepting and going, this is what I want to do and then I think trying to, mitigate that stress like fuel your body and eat enough and like you say make sure you're recovering and getting out and doing what doing your running or your walking or whatever it is so that you can feel good and happy and be healthy yeah sorry Adina go yeah I just I agree with Libby and I think that so often and I think in like the pro metabolic space like you said people are so scared of stressors and people are navigating women away from load because, oh, they're not recovering well. And I think just a lot of people are on really shitty programs. And like, Mm -hmm. if you're on a good program and you're eating enough, there will be dips in recovery, but like, you'll get stronger and your metabolism will improve and all those markers will get better. Like muscle shifts, hormone health, and we need to stop navigating women away from load. We just need them to get on better programs. Do you know what I also think you need to take into consideration is what's the rest of my life look like? Amy and I were talking about this this morning, you know, like, um, you know, like there's some women and we've had individual discussions about this that are just so stressed in their life, you know, like they've got these really stressful jobs and three kids and they just aren't setting themselves up to be able to commit to actually training hard because you need to be able to recover, like you said. So I think you have to look at your life and go, well, if I want to be this really, I'm just going to say tone, like have this tone in athletic, but if I want to look like Libby, if I want to look like Amy, then I need to set my life up to be able to train like them and to be able to recover like them and prioritize it. But if I'm sleeping four hours a night because I've got a kid that's awake and I've got this super stressful job that I hate and I've got this shitty toxic relationship. You're not really putting yourself into this, I guess, um, environment where you can actually have that. 100%. It's all a stress at the end of the day. I was just going to say, Kitty, you and I have talked about this. There was a point, and I see this in my clients, I also did it myself, where I was so fixed on my healing and being so careful um, because I had two miscarriages that I was so careful. What else can I manipulate? What else can I manipulate? Okay, I shouldn't work out. I need to be doing this. And I was so careful that I actually got to a point where I was just adding on more stress by trying to be as perfect as I could to prevent something. And, you know, one, it takes two people to make a baby. I'll always say that. But also like... What actually was great for me was just living my life. And that was going back into a little bit more strength training. Did my, I was very careful with my health markers and I don't want that to be missed because again, similar to you, Libby, like all of my markers looked really great, but there were different parts where I was like, you know, I probably should be a little bit more careful because I really did just have a miscarriage. That really is stressful in my body, but my mental health and my trying to perfect health was actually worse 
And which is so crazy because I had never really fallen. I had not noticed that I had fallen in that trap until after the two miscarriages. And when I finally released and allow myself to work out and again, being wise, being careful, looking at our bio, my biofeedback, was my sleep good? I didn't really have a sex drive. I was too sad to have a sex drive, but, you know, looking at the markers that I could and in and indulging a little bit more into some of the things that may be quote more stressful during a miscarriage. It was, it was enough of a release for me to fuel myself well and to, to release that part and just let go. And, 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 and not saying that that was the recipe that got me pregnant, but I think part of that letting go really did. And I, I don't know if the, I hope, I hope that's clear. Cause I do want to be protective of that, of okay. this conversation, because I think it is careful. You have to be careful for the people that are go, go, go. Um, but it, at the same time, you, it's also okay to push sometimes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just, there's, sorry, go, go. Oh, there's something called there's stress and then there's eustress and you know, they're both stressors, but eustress is beneficial and we're not always going to be able to avoid stress. We just simply can't, you know, uh, become, uh, <laughs> sort of, yeah we we can't like hole up in our house and like completely avoid become hermits to avoid stressors that's just not realistic and that takes the joy out of life so it's finding a balance of what works for you in a way that you can be diligent but not to the extent where you're creating more new stresses and Mm. almost detaching yourself and not being a human (laughs) We're all human, you know. It's fun to be challenged and pushed. I think I enjoy it. Like I enjoy growing our business, and I'll enjoy hitting new PBs in the gym, you know. But obviously, if you've not slept for three days, it's probably not good to go out and you know smash yourself. And you know, I think. Can, sometimes- I, can I add one more thing? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Just before before I forget. Um, just a tip that I found as well on recovery for any of the women who are in the pro metabolic world. Um, this is more from observation, but there are studies like heaps of studies that back this up because the pro metabolic diet, if that's what you call it, is very anti-inflammatory. The issue with that is that training is inflammatory and it's supposed to be inflammatory. So when you train those couple hours, particularly after you train it, your body is undergoing an inflammation process. And that is what makes it then, you know, you get better and stronger from that. So just my tip with that is with, especially the supplements that many people take, particularly vitamin C and vitamin E, and also aspirin, you're better off not to have those around your training session. So I would just stick them further away in the day if you're gonna take them, because basically what you're doing is you're just immediately blunting that inflammation. So you're blunting the inflammation that you need to have from your training in order to then both get better and build more muscle, but then also increase your stress resilience to that training, if that makes sense. If you're constantly blunting it, the inflammation, you are not going to ever build that resiliency to that stress. And you're also not going to build as much muscle. So I recommend just from all the research, keep it far away from your training sessions if you can, um, because you do need to allow that inflammation to do its thing, not blunt it and switch it off every single time um, in order to then become more resilient to it and start getting less sore from it. And that, cause that's a really big, um, complaints I get from a lot of women who have eaten this way and trained is that they just cannot get over the soreness. Like they're just sore for days on end. 
and I just looked into everything. I looked into like collagen and whether heaps of that, like I've just been doing so much research. I've asked people about it and that. And the only thing that has come back to me is the anti-inflammation. So, you know, the anti-inflammatories like aspirin and that, although they are very beneficial in other ways, because they do really help that systematic inflammation, which a lot of people have, but you do need that post-training inflammation to actually do its thing. So we don't want to just completely blunt it every time. Um, unless of course you're an athlete doing a three-day competition that's when I would be blunting it every single day but for the for the adaptation process to happen it's just a big tip and when I've helped the girls with that it's actually made a difference for them so it's something that people can probably you know possibly take how far away Libby so like say if you trained at lunchtime then how long would you wait have a few hours before or after the training session okay so like if you had it it, before you went to bed it would be sweet yeah yeah okay. it's more just that so it's immediately after where the research shows that mm. taking anti-inflammatories is you know and they even say don't take vitamin c right after anything that can block it okay cool i think this is like i guess because libby's on this gone to this tangent now it's probably a good time to talk about exercise intolerance because i don't know about you guys but i get messaged about that so much is that since i've gone repeat diet like libby says whatever that means I'm now exercise intolerant and, um, you know, I think there's a few things about that. One is, yeah, going to, we have this innate discomfort with going through a process and taking small steps to get to somewhere, right? So, and I, from a training perspective, I can't tell you how many personal trainers who are looking after clients of mine, they just don't bloody program properly. Like they're just lazy and they don't program properly. And if you have a trainer that's doing that, that's actually their job to do that. <laughs> like I know, and I know some people really like going to a training session and their trainer just, oh, they make up something new for me every session and it's really fun and, you know, well, that's great if you want to have fun, but go and get a friend and then get a trainer who's actually doing program design, who's going to help you get out of this air quote exercise intolerance. And we're so afraid of doing cardiovascular work that's just walking. And, you know, it's really important, like Libby said, to build your aerobic base and actually work on nasal breathing. So with my clients, I'm actually setting targets for that stuff. Like you have to walk a certain amount. You have to do a certain amount of nasal breathing. You have to hit a certain heart rate target before you can increase the intensity of that. We want so to Can see- I just ask you a question? Sorry, Lila. So what you're saying is when they're doing this exercise that they have to breathe through their nose? Yeah. So walking so and doing nasal breathing. breathing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So shut your mouth. <laughs> and this is really challenging for trainers, right? Because they like to fill their sessions with conversation and, you know, not focus. I think that's a way of not focusing enough on their client, right? So you have to stop talking and get them to focus on this. And, you know, this is where using heart rate monitors and heart rate variability, like Libby's talking about, is really helpful. Um, but also then when it comes to lifting, is like, Everybody wants to lift, but you have to earn the right to be able to lift. So you don't just walk into a gym and deadlift. Like you need to learn how to irradiate. You need to learn to how to wind up tension. You need how to learn how to hip thrust. You need to learn how to brace. You need to like there's so many components that you need to learn. And I think it's really interesting how Kitty's changed her training at the moment. And you're working with Amy and it's so effing, oh, I can swear on this podcast, I forgot. It's so fucking hard for you. So hard. It's so hard. It's so new. It's all this. Yeah. I'm like, how can I deadlift so much weight 
and I can't even do this goddamn like I don't know some of the I don't know shrimp squat. There's like weird names for shit as well. Just like uh, came out the end, I was just like, oh man, like this is just like really challenging. Well, and it comes back to that whole ego thing, right? We always like things that we're good at, and we're not very good at pushing ourselves to do things that we don't like doing. And with my clients, who are all these adrenaline junkies, they hate being in their body. They hate it. And so getting them to go for a walk and breathe through their nose and not talk on their phone and not look at their Instagram and not is like, what? You want me to be with myself? It's like, yeah, this is actually the foundation of training. This is actually the foundation of exercise intolerance, overcoming that. Is- Can I just ask you a question back to the nose breathing? Why is it important that people should be breathing through their nose? Well, this is how you activate your your sympathetic nervous system so as soon as you mouth breathe and this is Libby's really doing a lot of research into this so I might let her take over but um, breathing and another breathing that I use with my clients is piston breathing in their training and so you're really trying to look at you know when you have metabolic issues you waste a lot of carbon dioxide and you can't get oxygen into the cell so we need to really increase this ability to use carbon dioxide to push oxygen into the cell. And we can do that using breathing techniques, staying in a certain heart rate zone. Um, so piston breathing is another way, but that's all through the nose. So I'll do that with clients in the gym, walking, doing nasal breathing. Um, like Josh Rubin, Real Food Gangsters, has an awesome metabolic breathing program that you can download it, do, do it at home. Um so these are like, it's all active recovery, basically, and building your aerobic base. So I might let Libby talk about it a bit more. Talk, talk more, Libby, about this, like, because people are going, oh, what do you mean breathe through your nose? Like, why is that important? So if I'm going out for my walk or whatever yeah. party or I'm doing. In anaerobic respiration, which is when you're mouth breathing, the glucose breaks down without oxygen which creates lactic acid that in itself is a stressor. So that's stressful, right? When you're doing aerobic breathing, which is breathing through your nose, your nasal breathing, you're actually having carbon dioxide become the byproduct of that. So that is actually putting you into that parasympathetic state. So it's one of the only types of training that is non-stressful on the body. Weight training is stressful. The higher intensity aerobic training is stressful. And then of course, obviously getting into the anaerobic is very stressful as well. But this, when you do it this way, it's actually putting you into that rest and digest state. So it's not fight or flight. It's not stressful. And it's all because of the types of oxygen. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's all because of the types of energy that you're using. So you're basically producing more carbon dioxide versus producing the lactic acid, which is that byproduct of glucose breaking down without any oxygen, which is when you're mouth breathing and you're all breathless and you're getting out of breath. So, so if again, you... I'm not hating on that. That's like, I like to do that occasionally. It's good for different things. It's really good for building that anaerobic threshold, mm-hmm. which means you can then push the aerobic further without going into the anaerobic. So you do need to do a little bit of that training. If you're an athlete, if you're a CrossFitter, for sure, like all the training, but yeah, for most normal, you know, women just getting back into training and they're not athletes and they just really want to build that base. It's a good idea to have some of that genuine aerobic um, work in there, which is where you're not letting yourself get into that breathless state. So how could they, like, let's say someone's, you know, you say, oh, they've got, they're, they're really in a compromised state. So how, what, what's a good starting point? And then how would you build on? So hundred percent, I would just start with walking, but I would probably add in some breath drills, breath work drills, which is just, you know, inhaling for counts, 
holding for counts, exhaling for counts, holding for counts. I like doing it this way because that really, really helps with that carbon dioxide production as well, but that all just all through the nose. So that's honestly what I would start with. And then I would start them probably on a bit of a training program as well with strength training, but just keeping, you know, basically just building the foundations of everything. So learning how to squat, learning how to deadlift, you know, but I feel like it's super important to combine those two things. Otherwise, like I said, they're just going to go into the strength training and their body is going to be very anaerobic. So it's just, everything's going to make them breathless. Like, I mean, you know, people who can't even go up a flight of stairs without getting out of breath. And I know lots of people in this community who tell me that they're like, I can't even go upstairs anymore without getting out of breath. And I'm like, okay, so are you walking? They're like, yeah, I'm walking. I'm like, are you walking on your phone and doing phone calls and not even thinking about your breathing? And they're like, yes. So I'm like, okay, so first of all, this is what we're going to start with and just break it right down. So that again, it comes down to what Layla and Amy and everyone was saying about, you know, really being like working with your body, not like being aware of what you're doing, being aware of what your breath is doing and all that and building from there. Uh, And then, Obviously, once that's once they're pretty good with that, then we can add in some like into that next zone, which I call zone two, which is still aerobic, but it's a little bit higher of a heart rate. And that really helps build that work capacity so that as they're getting stronger with the training and as they're getting, you know, lifting the heavier weights, they are able to recover so much easier from that. So their temperatures aren't dropping and all that kind of stuff. So it just goes along with the different levels. Um, That's what I would recommend for someone who's really just starting out. Mm, so they could like say, just as an example, go, I'm just going to walk for 15 minutes a day without my phone and be present. And then I'm going to go, maybe I'll do that for a week and then I'll build on it and then yeah. get to a certain point and then they can start some strength training. Yeah. So gradual. Is yeah. The- I like doing like three 15 minute walks as well, rather than one big walk. Um, yeah. And there's actually a lot of research that shows us that that really helps with insulin sensitivity if they do that after a meal as well which um he loves a 10 minute walk yeah Yeah. (laughs) right after Uh, if you have any insulin resistance problems at all 100 percent, you should be implementing that breathing helps with digestion and also doing that straight after you eat gets you into that rest and digest state and that really helps your digestion because digesting food is a rest and digest state thing that's happening it's not a Um, fight or flight thing so if you're stuck in fight or flight you are not going to be able to digest your food properly and all of that has to do with muscle building as well because the better you can digest and assimilate those nutrients the more muscle you can build as well so Mm. yeah it's all kind of really connected this is a question everyone oh sorry did someone want to say something oh i was just going to say i utilize the breath work at the front end of strength training sessions as well for clients Mm. i mean first of all because a lot of my clients are either preconception or postpartum and the implementation of that plays a really big role in pelvic floor function. But just like Libby was saying, and just like Layla was saying, that actually sets the stage for muscle building. Like if you can utilize the breath work, get your body into that state, deliver oxygen, deliver carbon dioxide better, like we actually will build muscle way better. And so we're talking about exercise resistance. We're talking about people thinking that they're not recovering well, like something so simple, like utilizing breath work, learning how to use your breath, using different breath strategies, actually triggering the central nervous system before we just start blindly picking a load up off the floor. Like all of these things make a huge, huge difference. Um, And like we were saying, just like shitty programs too. So it's not you, it's the stuff you're doing. And obviously ensuring that you're supporting, like getting enough food in and the right nutrients and sleep is important. You know, like I've got a lot of women message me, oh, I'm like, I've only had a baby like two months ago and I want to try. I'm like, you just had a kid. Like you're exhausted. 
like just eat the food and look after the kid. Like now's not the time to be thinking about I've got to get into, you know, size eight bloody jeans. I think women are just hard on themselves. Yeah, but do the breath work. If you just had a kid, eat the food, but also do the breath work. Go for a walk. Go for a walk. Don't go and do like, you know, a heavy bloody set of deadlifts maybe. might not be the best idea. Okay, so this is this this question. So a lot of women are – time poor like you know they might have you know like I'm obviously I don't have a kid Libby has an old kid an older kid Amy doesn't have kids <laughs> everyone else has oh no Jess doesn't have kids hey who has kids yeah well, only two or oh, three so I'm assuming obviously like and um Libby would remember from when um Ash was smaller and it, this is just what I, an observation I've had from my friends that have little kids it's like full on when you've got this young baby like they come over and it is just you can't take your eyes off them. It is constant from the moment my ops manager has too. From the moment they get up, you know, like so they they're time poor. So they don't have a lot of time to train. So if they don't have a lot of time to train, what should they be prioritizing? Want me to say? Yeah, I, I would recommend definitely prioritizing strength training mm-hmm. um, and probably some low intensity. Just that recovery type work for sure Um, but then keep in mind strength training comes in many different forms but if you're someone who has like zero of a base so you cannot even do a deadlift you cannot even do a squat you can't even do those there's a handful of big lifts which are really important just to build that strength base I would just focus first on learning those Mm. Um, get some good coaching like it's it's huge I mean you know what also affects recovery which is something I read recently is doing training with poor form because it's so stressful on your body. If you have, I can tell you from like my CrossFit background as well, if you have an athlete who moves really, really well, it's like artwork to watch, it's beautiful. And then you have an athlete who moves really poorly and it's just like, you just cringe to watch them because you can see everything just hurting inside them. So if you have poor form, that is a huge stressor. And it's so, you know how I said that recovery bucket there, that is taking a lot out of that recovery bucket. So you want to make your gains as cheap as possible. You want them to cost as little recovery as possible and getting coaching to lift right is really, really key for sure to build that initial base. Um, But then once you have that base, I mean, the sky's the limit. Like you can do full body three day a week and get great results from that. You can do like all sorts of different things. It just depends where you want to go with it. But I always recommend that base. I come back to that base. Like, mm-hmm. you know, don't go try lifting to failure from zero to a hundred. Don't go doing a marathon training. If you've never, you know what I mean? Like build a base with everything. I really agree with that. Cause like Craig and I often talk about this, like some of the women that have had the most incredible transformations in our program are awesome lifters. Like you watch them lift and they've got beautiful squats, beautiful deadlifts, good benches. Like they're really good at those big compound lifts, you know, the, everything. And it's just, you. it's like, I don't know, this is just me talking about how I feel when I lift because I don't understand the technical terms. You guys might be able to like tell me what this is, but it's like I've just, you become so efficient at the movements. You get so much and it's so, your technique is so good. You're getting so much stimulation. And you can do more reps because your technique is tight. Like you might be able to get another five, whereas if your technique was shit, you could only get, you know, like 10 or whatever. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the technical. 
if the, stim- the stimulus is greater than the fatigue yeah. that's what we're always mm. going for so i actually learned this from renaissance periodization i have to give them a shout out but mm. he has a stimulus to fatigue ratio and when you're first starting out and you have really poor technique oftentimes or you have don't have that mind muscle connection oftentimes your fatigue level is so much higher than even the stimulus you're getting on your muscle as you get a lot more efficient with the movements and the lifting then you can do different types of things and your um stimulus just hits the spot easily without very much fatigue so that's the goal and that's also where exercise choice comes into the picture like personally for me I don't deadlift really really heavy very often anymore because I could deadlift two and a half times my body weight and I'm like okay that doesn't get me my goals now my goal is maybe to you know build more muscle here or more muscle there so I'll pick other movements that support that I'll do a lot more like Romanian deadlifts or I'll do some you know elevated you know slower tempo all that kind of stuff so you can kind of go into that once you have that base there but you need to build that base first because otherwise you have nowhere to go from there if Mm. you don't have that base you've got no starting point so you can't really kind of go into these other things like gymnastics or like all these other types of fun movements um yeah i just think that that stimulus to fatigue is really important with form particularly that's why it's so important to get your form right because you'll be able to get so much more stimulus out of a movement than someone else who's Mm. just going to get smashed with fatigue and no stimulus so they're not going to get the muscle gains but they're going to get a whole hell of a lot of fatigue mm. i think that's what i've like because i've obviously a bit advanced lifter and lifting heavy is like it's i can't really deadlift and squat in the same week because it's too much like because i'm lifting so heavy like it's good if i i actually make better progress if i deadlift every second week because I just need that extra recovery time. But I think, yeah, it's like, again, like you just, you got to listen to your body. eh? Like you can't be deadlifting every day to failure because you're just going to wreck yourself. Like, and also less injury. If you get the technique right, you're just not going to injure yourself, which is good because obviously, you know, then you can't train at all. And you were also training to failure. Like, I think something that the question you asked originally was like, if you are really short on time, what do you do? And I work on this with a lot of my clients and this has kind of been a shift in my approach as well is like really utilizing the minimum effective dose. And I have women who like always squat, hinge, push, pull, carry, but I barely have my clients do more than three reps. Like there's just, we can get so much out of one to three reps that especially when there's metabolic considerations, especially when we're short on time, when we're short on sleep, like utilizing the minimum effective dose to actually progress muscle without overloading, without going to failure. Like there's just so much that we can accomplish with three reps. And I think like the people who think they don't have time for training have this history of training to failure and not realizing that like there's so much we can accomplish with less. Well, so what, you can, what you can recover from, right? Like you say, like it's, it's someone like me who's been training for a long time can recover from more than like someone who's never trained. Like Libby, Libby can do heaps more and still be healthy and recover because she's an athlete and she's conditioned. Um, there's another scale of like there's the minimum effective dose and then there's what mm. they call the maximum recoverable dose. Mm, you don't want to yeah. go past that. If you go below the minimum effective dose, you're just doing what I call junk training. You're not going to get yeah. any stimulus. So you do need to get close to the couple reps within failure. You don't have to go to absolute failure, but you need to, the studies show that you need to get within at least five reps. It's better mm. to get within three reps, you know? Um, and then there's also that 
maximum recoverable dose, which I tend to sometimes go more towards that, but that's where you have to be like really spot on with everything in the recovery. Mm. And that's when you really do get those adaptations when you do cycle, do some cycles closer to that end. Um, especially when you become more advanced, it's if you just only ever stay to the minimum effective dose when you are an advanced trainer, it's really, really hard to make gains. Mm-hmm. So there are t- there's a time and a place again, but it comes, I think it comes down to like your question was a mom who's brand new to like, she just doesn't have the time. So she probably would do better off staying with that minimum effective dose. Um, and even if it's just a matter of maintaining what she currently has until she's then ready to push to the next goal. Because maintenance yeah. is, I tell people all the time, maintenance is a goal in itself. If you can mm-hmm. maintain your strength, if you can maintain your muscle, you can maintain your health, your metabolic markers, you are killing it in life. Like that's <laughs> a great, you're not supposed to always be chasing some lofty goals. So yeah, I think that's a really good idea for them. Just minimum effective dose, do what you can do, but try to maintain as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Good different seasons, yeah. right? Like you're yeah. going to have times in your life where you're stressed and shit's happening. And you're like, well, I've just got to be okay with not making progress. Like I'm just surviving if I've got a newborn kid, <laughs> which I can imagine would just be so hardcore. Like, We've just so put cool. so much of a, you know, women who shred after pregnancy on a pedestal, you know, it's like you get a trophy for that. And that's just actually bullshit because like Jess said before, like if you want to have really beautiful fatty milk, that's super nutritious for your baby, that you're not depleting yourself in nutrients and minerals every time you feed, you want body fat. And this is like a once for me, you know, it's a one-time opportunity in my life that I got to conceive a baby, carry a baby, feed a baby, be with a baby. I just was kind of like, you know what? Fuck that. I'm just going to be a little bit fat and I'm going to sleep and I'm going to feed her because it's not just about me anymore. It's actually about her. And it's also about how I recover from the process so that I can show up for her and be the mom that I wanted to be. So, you know, I'm 40. I don't feel that great about how I've come out of pregnancy. I'm going to be honest. It's challenging. I work in the fitness industry. There's a whole lot of ego bullshit in my head. That's like, I should have looked like this and I should be able to do this. But at the end of the day, I know I'm not going to go into menopause absolutely broken because I gave absolutely everything away in my in my fertility and my conception and my breastfeeding. You know, I'm seeing women in their menopausal years who are really suffering with like bone breakages and, you know, not being able to have dental implants because their jaw can't accept the implant because they really didn't look after themselves in those childbearing years. They spent so much time in those childbearing years worrying about how thin they were going to be and how they were going to get their baby body back. And I know I have a lot of compassion for these women because when you have a baby, like you open Instagram and there's like 10 fucking programs telling you, come and do our get your baby body back, you know, pre-baby body back program rubbish (laughs) and you know just be a little bit fat (laughs) just enjoy being a little bit fat and enjoy feeding your baby and enjoy taking the rest and understand that that part of your life is about building a recovery base recovering from pregnancy so that when you go back to training you do it in this way that is about positive adaptation not killing yourself and screwing yourself up for menopause late in life. And that's the problem, right? We don't see the damage that we do until years after something happens. So would you yeah. say then that, oh, sorry, go Meg. I'm saying. 
I was just going to say, I think the biggest thing that you said was the recovery part too. I mean, obviously, I mean, not obviously, but minerals, you mentioned minerals, vitamins, obviously from a nutritional point is what I'm thinking, but um, so much more, which I wish I would have done a better job at, I didn't do uh, recovery work until postpartum with uh, my son. And I'm so much more aware of like, it's not normal to pee and sneeze. And, you know, after, you know, after having a baby and this idea of allowing my body to actually rest and recover, um, you know, physically and enjoying the benefits of sneezing and coughing without having to worry about if I, you know, you can see through my leggings, um, is, is a, a reality. And when we do put as a new mom, the pressure of, you know, losing body weight and things like that, we're, we're also missing this huge, um, component of, of actually recovering and having a healthy body to get through life. And I don't know, I feel like, um, this is probably a whole different, you know, realm to go um, down, but, uh, Adina, I feel like since you specialize in that, you probably like your heart's probably like pounding because you probably see that so much. Yeah. And specifically with athletes, I think athletes, we have a propensity to just like think that because our muscles are still strong, that our pelvic floor and our breath is going to catch up. And so when we're ready to start training, we just jump back in and we can still pull the same weight off the floor. We can still, you know, like everything we could do, we get to those maxes quicker, but there's so little attention played to how this system is functioning and how we're recovering from that trauma, that injury, that childbirth is, whether it's C-section or vaginal delivery, like it's so important to build that foundation. And again, this is why breath comes in so much because it plays such a huge role. And if we take the time to like focus on that and build that foundation, when those lifts come back up, will be much better for it. And honestly, our body will probably be stronger than preconception when we didn't understand any of this, when we didn't I'll let have know that. Mine is. <laughs> the before and after with Brady and then with the, with the new baby, because I'm actually seeing a pelvic floor expert now. So uh, I'm, I'm still shocked this far along 32 years old that I, being an athlete my whole life, how wrong I've been breathing. So it's crazy. Yeah. It leaves on oh, me. She's really like, as soon as you get pregnant, Kitty, you'll be working with me and I'll be doing whatever she's going to do to make. I think there's like, there's quite a huge misconception and I work with a lot of lifters who are in their forties and fifties and they have incontinence and they had totally fine births and they, you know, had, didn't have any pelvic floor issues, but they show up later in life or, you know, it's this classic thing of we're not prepared to do what we need to do at the time that it's happening. And then we have to pay for stuff later down the track. And, you know, there is, there is a, a lot of misconception, I think within pregnancy training and understanding that your pelvic floor can only take a certain amount of load and that in pregnancy you need to actually be able to drop and open your pelvic floor like when you get to birthing a baby you need to actually be able to release your pelvic floor and what happens with a lot of lifters and people who are training a lot is that they their pelvic floor becomes super hypertonic right because all of a sudden you have a baby and then when you lift, there's this increase in intra-abdominal pressure. And so there's more weight being pushed on the pelvic floor. And then all these women are like so scared about their pelvic floor. They're doing all these tightening exercises. So it's just getting tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And no one's talking about dropping and opening. And so I think 
first of all, when, if you're pregnant, you really need to work with a women's health physio, a specialist who's going to get her hand in there and have a look at what's going on in the muscle, right? And we're talking about keeping your vagina for life, okay? Um, so she needs to get her hand in there. Is your can you drop an open? So my the pelvic floor specialist that I work with, she actually puts a patch. She's got this paddle pop stick kind of thing with measurements on it. And so throughout my pregnancy, because I had a really hypertonic pelvic floor, is that I would need it to be able to drop an open to the measurement that she wanted me to get to, to be able to birth, you know, without tearing. So we know that women who are athletic have a lot more C-sections. And I think this is why it's because they have a failure to progress because they cannot relax relax and open their pelvic floor. So I actually stopped strength training when I was pregnant because I really wanted to birth naturally without tearing and I wanted to come out of pregnancy with this awesome body, right? And so it's like you got to choose. You can have it all but you can't have it all at the same time. The other thing um, with exercise programs was when there's so much emphasis on abdominal training in pregnancy, we actually want to, like Meg was dancing around just before, we just want to stretch out your belly, like let it hang out and just let your abdominals go because the more you pull on those abdominals, the more that linear alba, that fascia between the abdominal muscles is going to stretch and it's going to tear. And I've seen some really nasty really nasty um, diastases where women have to go and get surgery to pull it back together. And honestly, if they just taken their training load way back, way, way back, they would not be in this place. Right. And then when we come out of pregnancy, it's about applying load at the appropriate amount of time. So, you know, most pregnant women who've just given birth need to do breath work. And, you know, I really say to women, look at your baby. So, in the Czech program, when we work with rehab, we really start building it up from looking at infant development and how babies learn to move because there's a whole sequencing of movement that builds up their system. And I say to women, if you just do what your baby's doing, this is actually the most appropriate form of movement for you to do because they're building their core, they're building their hips, they're building their shoulders. You know, like so many people can't crawl backwards and forwards for like 10 minutes, like actually just do that with your baby, focus on your breath work and focus on, you know, which um, Lauren and Meg can talk about more is your energy requirements. And Jess can talk about too, like how many calories you need to eat, doing your food prep, getting enough sleep. Um, They're your focuses after having a baby, honestly, and seeing a woman's health physio and making sure that your pelvic floor contraction is appropriate because a lot of women have, this super tightening, but they can't let it go, or the, the, the contraction is too severe and it doesn't come on nice and slowly. Like, I think that's the best thing a woman can do in a pregnancy go and work with a pelvic floor specialist and actually have her put her fingers in there and give you feedback on your contraction and your ability to relax and also focus on relaxing your abdominal wall. So, that's probably good because we've got this question in here about pregnancy like, how should I focus? What, what should I be doing for training if I'm trying to get pregnant and then when I'm pregnant and then post-pregnancy? You sort of covered it a bit already. Well, I would actually, I've been speaking to this with the women's health physio that I work with as well, is when you're in the preconception phase and if you're a lifter, excuse me, you're probably more likely to have a hypertonic pelvic floor. Actually get your pelvic floor done when you're in your stage of conception as well because she's actually had some research where 
having a too tight a pelvic floor can actually interfere with um, having getting the sperm right up there, right? Because it's too tight and it can't get up and and over. Now is what you're saying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Are you going to stick your fingers up my vagina? Is that what you say? Oh, no, I don't do that. I refer out, always refer out for this kind of stuff. You don't need to learn everything. I do not (laughs) want to stick my hand in all my clients' vaginas. I've got enough stuff to do. Sorry, I'm starting. My blood sugar started dropping, so I'm a bit. Sorry, keep going. So, yeah, so go get that checked out. In terms of training, like how should you be training? Well, I think it's like what Libby was saying to you the other day. You know, you have and I'm reading this book that she told me about, was that you have a certain metabolic threshold. Do you mm. want to talk about it, Libby? Because it was really good how you explained it. Oh, you're on mute. You're on mute. Is that the book, that burn one that I was talking about? Um, so, yeah, basically it means there's there's a certain threshold that everyone has as far as the energy we can produce, Right. This, they've done like studies in African cultures where they move so much more than someone in, for example, America, and they're kind of ending up burning around the same at the end of the day. Um, and they say it's about 2.5 times your basal metabolic rate. So that would be, you know, you're thinking like 4,000 calories maximum for a girl. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't, your body just can't produce enough energy pa- past that it's just not able to. So obviously it comes, you know, like actually producing energy for your exercise is, or for all of your bodily functions is a stressful thing. It costs energy to make energy, if that makes sense. So you have to digest your food has to turn into energy and all that. And there's, yeah, there's that limit. So it kind of basically shows that when someone in the terms of someone who does like a whole bunch of aerobic exercise, like a marathon runner, for example, they're not necessarily burning 8,000 calories, even though that's what their energy is costing them to do. They're actually ending up taking it from the other bucket. So they're taking it from their recovery bucket, or they might be taking it from their, um, you know, fertility bucket, all these different buckets that you have where you need energy to go into. There is a limit to what you can produce. So instead of producing more and more and more for the activity you're doing, you end up having to compensate from other areas. So I think that's what you were referring to when it comes to needing to, um, get prepared for pregnancy is that what you're talking about like you need to make sure that you have enough in that bucket the fertility one yeah well i guess it makes sense right it's like obviously it's it's stressful heavy strength training is stressful on the body and i'm trying to make this baby you're trying to save energy yeah baby making plus everything else on top it's like you can't do everything you can't do everything um so say then would maybe um if you're trying to have a baby would it be good to just dial it back a little bit maybe is that what, is that, Loren, do you want to talk about that? Maybe because you, sure. you preconception. Yeah, happy to. Um, so I think it's really dependent on the person and their individual situation. Uh, I would never want to make somebody scared to work out or train the way that they want to train. Mm-hmm. Um, it really just comes back to, in my opinion, how your body's responding currently to the training that you're doing. Mm-hmm. If it's responding well, and you've been doing it for a while, then there's no reason why you should change it. Um, If you are doing a specific type of training and you are experiencing a lot of symptoms, it's a really good idea to try to figure out what those symptoms are. And likely you will need to assess your training as well as part of that before you try to go into uh, preconception. Because you don't want to carry those things into pregnancy. And actually they might, you know, hinder certain things. Um, as far as like 
the type of training, again, it really depends on the person. Um, during pregnancy, you may find that you can no longer tolerate the same amount of training that you were doing <laughs> or the type of training um, as you've discovered, Kitty. So, you know, it's really good to put it into perspective um, that, you know, you're building a placenta. You're, you're building not only a baby, but you're building an entirely new organ. So in the first trimester and throughout pregnancy too, you're carrying, you're, you're building, an, you know, a human, another organ. You're also carrying more weight. There's a lot of changes happening. The energy demands, it goes back to what Libby's saying too. Your body can only handle so many things too. So depending on the stressors that you're experiencing, you might find that you have less resilience or less tolerance for exercise as well, especially as you start to go into the first and second and third trimester. So you might find that you get out of breath when you go up the stairs, you might find that things don't feel the same or you can't bend down as much um, or definitely you can't lift as much weight. And that's okay because there's a lot of energy that needs to be felt, you know, being shuffled to towards the baby and the growth of the baby and also maintaining your own body, allowing the body to stretch. So there's a lot of energy demands that are going on. And again, it's really about prioritizing those things. Um, so there's definitely exercises that you should, there's a couple that shouldn't be done, I, I would say, um, like ab exercises. I'm sure Adina can probably speak to them more. Um, like things like crunches can make diastasis recti worse. Uh, so, you know, it's really important to find ab exercises that will support the body like planks, um, uh, standing crunches, things like that. Those are okay. Um, excessive jumping. So plyometrics, you may find that those don't work for you either at this time. Um, and you want to be careful with jumping, uh, exercises as well, just because our ligaments are more relaxed and stretchy, uh, because of hormones like relaxin, um, and estrogen that are higher in our body when we're pregnant. Um, lying on your back. So the second and third trimesters, but as the baby gets bigger, as your uterus gets heavier, uh, you don't want to lie on your back for too long because it can compress, uh, circulation, uh, blood vessels and uh, stop circulation. So, um, those are kind of a couple things. Breathing is especially important. Uh, you don't want to cut off oxygen to the baby. So you don't want to be doing anything with your breath for too long. So, I would say breathing exercises and getting a good foundation and incorporating that into your exercise routine prior to pregnancy will make exercising during pregnancy a lot easier and more manageable. Um, and, you know, of course there's things like working out in too hot weather and things like that. But um, at the end of the day, it's really personalized. Um, and I really do agree with, um, I agree partially, you know, athletic women, they can have more uh, hypertonic uh, pelvises, but they're also, uh, if you've been exercising and training, it can also make managing the, the extra weight and the sort of additional athleticism 
uh, I guess, of the body during pregnancy, because you're carrying more weight, you're going to have to increase your blood volume by 50%, um, or sorry, 100%. Uh, it can make those transitions a little easier because you're more, you're able to adapt to those things a little better. Um, so there's pros and cons. And I do agree that working with a pelvic floor specialist prior to pregnancy uh, can help a lot. Um, so those are just my thoughts around training. Judges. Um, and I just want to bring up the fascia really quick, because I think this is very overlooked in pelvic floor work. Um, I, I, from my experience and a lot of other women's experience is like, they start working with a pelvic floor physio, they cannot relax those muscles physically. And this is both true for athletic women and non-athletic women. I see it a lot with women who have digestive issues. Their, their fascia is just wrecked all around their pelvis and up into their abdominal muscles, um, even up their sides. Some people hold a lot of tension in their neck and because because the fascia is all connected, it's actually pulling on their pelvic floor and they physically cannot relax. And we store trauma in the fascia. And the fascia is a highly metabolic tissue as well. It it's creation is copper dependent. So it requires a lot of mineral to create fascia and to keep the fascia healthy. And I do think like, we know that tongue ties and lip ties are fascia. And so, you know, we, as we're seeing more and more babies being born with lip ties and tongue ties, I don't think that that is a coincidence that the mother's fascia is not healthy going into pregnancy. And so I think a lot of people's pelvic floor issues would be resolved if they started doing myofascial release properly. And I highly recommend seeing a professional and having them actually release your fascia for you. Um, and then learning how, like what areas you need to be working on at home. Mm. Okay, cool. I'm just really conscious of the time because we've been going for like three hours and I don't know about anyone else, but I'm hungry. Like it's an hour past my lunchtime. So I feel like we've sort of covered quite a lot of this stuff already without actually me specifically asking the question. Like we've talked about, you know, like why we think prioritizing strength training is good when it comes to fat loss. Like, you know, how have we talked about building muscle, how you build muscle? Do you guys want to quickly cover that, Amy and Libby? How do you build muscle? Break it down real quick. Tell the viewers, how do we make more muscle? Well, for me, it comes back to uh, can you actually move properly? Are you mobile and flexible? <laughs> can you go through full ranges of motion? Like Jess just said, what's the quality of the tissue like? What's the quality of the joint like? Because if you can't squat or you can't put your arm over your head and don't have good overhead range, there is a lot of inefficiency in the body. You're going to increase your risk of injury. Uh, then it's going to be really hard to train consistently and actually build muscle. Uh, so for me, it comes, but this is why I'm a big believer in body weight, strength training and gymnastic strength training. And Libby calls it like building a base. You yeah. need to earn the right to do the heavy lifts and to train hard to build that muscle. And you need to be able to move through full ranges of motion. If you can't squat, if you can't sit in the bottom of your squat, you don't have any right loading that bar up with a shitload of weight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the same as like, if you can't hang on a bar, you don't have any right yet mm -hmm. to do lots of pull-ups, to build your shoulders, to build your back. Uh, so for me, how do we start to build muscle? We get full ranges of motion. We mm -hmm. get mobile, we're flexible, we have healthy tissue, muscles, tendons, ligaments, joints. And then once we have that, 
we're really efficient. You were talking about technique before. Yeah, if you are an efficient lifter, you can lift heavier, you can go harder, you can go longer. That is going to help you train harder to create the stimulus to build more muscle. So for me, it always comes back to mobility and flexibility. But what actually builds the muscle? Because like, I think women might get confused and go, oh, but you can train harder. So not necessarily, like, for example, if I can, if I've got good flexibility, good range of motion, I can perform a squat, good execution, and I can squat 50 kilos for 10 reps. And then in, I don't know, I'm just saying a number, six months time, I can squat hundred kilos for 10 reps. Would I have built some muscle? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so what actually builds muscle? How does muscle- you need progressive overload in some form. Okay, progressive, cool. overload, progressive overload doesn't need to necessarily be heavier weights, but you do need progressive overload and heavier weights is an easy way to get progressive overload in. So it takes three different things when it comes to the muscles to actually build muscle. You need mechanical tension, you need metabolic stress, and you need muscle damage. Mechanical tension is the number one biggest driver of muscle mechanical tension basically is lifting heavier weights or doing something harder on your muscles than you did previously so that's why we always harp on there has to be some form of progression in your training if you genuinely want to build muscle so for example amy she does gymnastics she would obviously Mm -hmm. have progressions in there for Mm -hmm. her students to make sure they are progressing and make sure they are improving make sure they are building muscle so you you have got to have that in your training system somehow regardless of what you do whether you're doing crossfit whether you're doing gymnastics whether you're doing olympic weightlifting whether you're doing whatever it is you need to have progressive overloads you need to be overloading those muscles more than you did last week more than you did last month in order to be able to continue lifting now there's like you can go down so many rabbit holes yeah because, <laughs> i was just gonna say but that's, so but that's good much. the progression the basis like, always think yeah. am i progressing am i doing am i doing some sort of progression from last month from last year that's what i was saying before about is your training working for you are you getting the result you're after are you progressing yeah. Um, that's obviously one side of it. And then there's also the nutrition side of it. You need to make sure you are eating enough, particularly protein and carbs. You need the carbs to fuel the exercise and you need the protein is beyond important for muscle building. You need to be getting that um, preferably at regular intervals throughout the day to make sure that you're stimulating muscle protein synthesis and then you need to recover. So there's the actual training, there's the diet and the nutrition and there's the recovery. If you nail all of these three things, you will build muscle. So would you guys agree then that you know like I used to just jump around and do a million different things and never actually follow any sort of program would you say that it's important to get a program and follow a structured program that has progression in it yes. and not be changing you need, yes. a you million. Need to, yeah. yeah you need to follow a process and a method <laughs> and yeah. there are standards and qualities that you need to achieve within a program to help you along with all the other stuff Libby said to build muscle, but you do. And that, like she said, you know, we need progressive overload, but that can come in so many different ways. It can come in weight, tension, creation, complexity of a movement, uh, reps, sets, like, yeah, the volume, there's so many variables that as long as we're progressing in those variables, uh, we're eating enough protein, we're recovering, you know, we have that flexibility and mobility, we will build muscle, but you need a good coach and you need a good program. And this is the problem is that there are a lot of trainers and coaches that don't actually understand the approach, the process, the method. Mm. Uh, And, you know, that's where we really struggle. You know, I've known females that have been training for 
10 years and can't even get a single pull-up because they were never taught the right process and method. And then they also didn't have all those other things to, you know, to support their training and to get where they wanted to go. They didn't eat enough. They were stressed and everything that we've been talking about today. So running doesn't build muscle. No. No, it's catabolic. So long, slow endurance work is catabolic. Now, I think the most important thing is that you have to enjoy it, like you said at the start of the conversation, to bring it back around. Mm. Now, I also believe that you need to do things that are going to support you through your whole life. So you actually do need to be mobile and flexible. Do you mm. want to be in pain? Probably not. Okay, well, you need mobility and flexibility. Do you mm. want to have a strong, resilient, capable body? Okay, well, you need to strength train, yeah? And then if you do enjoy running, like Libby, yeah, she likes to go out for sprints, but she's done that foundation work. She mm. eats to support that, so she's earned the right to do that. Yeah, if I wanted to go for a run, I'm going to be okay because I have a strong, resilient, capable body. I have a good foundation. But if you really want to build muscle, you have to stop running every yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, so we've got to do strength training. That's what you're saying. If we, if yeah, I want yes. To I add something yes. else as well. So technically you need progressive overload to make progress. And we'll have lots of women say, well, I went and joined F45 and I made progress. <laughs> That's because you had progressive overload in there. So it's kind of like someone saying, I did low carb and I lost weight. I didn't do a calorie deficit, but it's like, no, you lost weight because that was a calorie deficit just hidden. So this is the problem with people that do group classes is that there, yes, initially first three months, you're going to get great results. But if you have nowhere that you are tracking what you are doing, then what are you going to do when the result plateaus, which it will, because you're just repeating the same thing over and over again, you're not going to know where to go. So yes, of course there is built-in progressive overload. Anytime you try something new, even if there's no, it was just random, right? Mm. Um, there'll be that progressive overload initially because it's new on your body. But if you want to then progress further, you need to be knowing what you are doing and you need to know that by tracking. So if you don't have any of, you know, your weights or your, you know, what's your progression that you've done. So if there's none of that and you're just doing random stuff, you'll, it, it'll work initially. It will. And that's yeah. what most women find, but they'll get to that point where they plateau and they don't know where to go from there. So same with diets, all these other diets work for fat loss because there is somehow a calorie deficit in there, but then they all go and think it's the magic of keto or the magic of low carbs. So it's the same with training. It will work initially, but it's not working because it's F45. It's working because it's progressive overload on your body until mm. it's not. So would you guys say then like, you know, um, it's going, okay, what, one, what's my goal? What do I enjoy then? How many days a week can I actually commit to training? So like as an example, Craig trains six days a week. I don't like training six days because I like to just do other stuff. I just go for walks and things. But if you're like the program is important. So if you've got a six day program, but you aren't, you're only always doing two days of it, it's probably not going to be very effective. So do you think it's about going, what can I commit to? What do I enjoy? So if I can commit to four days training, then the program needs to take that into account. Yeah, so what yeah. can you commit to? Because some people love, like Craig is like, loves to train every day. Not every day is one day off, but like he walks every day and Libby likes to train every day. And then other people go, well, I've only, like we've got women in our program who can only train twice a week. So they've got a special program. I don't train every day. I train like five times a week, but yeah, <laughs> five to six. Oh, five to six. But yeah, you know what I mean? Like it's got to, but you're not heavy deadlifting five days a week. Your program is re reflective. At, same as Craig, yeah. his program looks different to mine. Um because obviously if you can't commit to six days a week and if your program's not 
set up for you to do that, then it's pointless, right? Like you've got to be able to commit to it and be consistent with it. Consistency is key. Yeah, well, it's a practice. It's a practice. Mm -hmm. And this is where we get caught is that we're not just training to work out or sweat or exercise. We're creating Mm -hmm. a practice. And what does the body need right now? Yeah. If you're in pain, you're not flexible or you've just had a baby like we've just been speaking about, the body doesn't need to do high intensity training or lift heavy or do complex gymnastic strength training. The body needs to build that foundation back up again. And then it changes depending on where we're at, what we want to do. But the whole thing is a practice. And this is where we get stuck is that I can train every day. Yeah. I'm not deadlifting 200 kilos every day. I'm doing spine work. I'm doing mobility work. I'm walking. I'm, you know, doing something that I enjoy. Yes, I'm training hard. I'm lifting heavy. And it's all of these things. And this is where, you know, even if we do only have two days, what does my body need right now? It's not just about what I want. Yes, you want to be strong, but what does it actually need? What is it telling you? And you have to be okay that it's going to be a process to get there. But if you build a foundation, you will get there and you will build a strong, resilient, capable body. I think that's, you just got to start. Yeah. Don't you think, would you guys agree with that? Like so many women, they go, oh, I'm never going to lift that sort of weight. I'll never be able to do, look at Amy and go, I'll never be able to do that. I'll look at Libby and go, I'll never be able to do what she's doing. But you guys all started at zero at some point. Like you weren't always able to do the things you can do now, but how did you get there? Were you just like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get better at this craft and here you are how many years later. So it's like, I think instead of focusing on the so far away, just go, well, what is it that I need to show up and be good at every session and just improve a little bit? Cause all those yeah. little things add up. Yeah. But also like I trained a lot, I train a lot, do you know, and you can't compare to someone that, you know, has come from a certain background and spends three or four hours of her day training. Yeah. Because she loves it. And that's what she does Mm. where, you know, that might not be achievable for you and you need to readjust the expectation um, or just know it's going to take longer or you need to change your reality to achieve what you want to achieve. And that's like Mm. as simple really as it is. It's like, you can get there, we can get you there, but is it, you know, do you really want that? Yeah. Do you want actually want to be in the practice of training, you know, for a couple of hours a day to achieve this complex, you know, movement? Or do you want to just like, like you said, Kitty, train a couple of days, three days, but you have to be okay that you may not get to where you want to go or where, where you think that you want to be because you, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of work uh, to, you know, to specialize. Mm. And to build that physique, I think like years of the lifting and the strength, all the stuff that you've done, it took you years to build that body, right? Like you didn't get it in six months. And women yeah. I think, need to realise that too is that it's years and years of tra- But it's also okay not to want that. Everyone's blood sugar's low. They're yeah, we're all, all looking empty. tired. <laughs> They're, They're all, all on empty. Just, I just want to really quickly because we didn't cover this. So, like, if you're someone with low thyroid, PCOS, endo, like severe hormonal issues, what should you be doing, Jess? Like if that's, you're, you're pretty in a mess. Yeah, yeah I think, because <laughs> I just said, I'm about full catabolic right now, but I think my brain's got a little more. Um, I think you should listen to your body and build a foundation first. So strong foundation 
first, and that requires nourishment and nutrition. Many people with PCOS and endo are like, they have gotten themselves to such a point of imbalance that strength training might not even be ready on their radar. They might need to move their body. They might need to work on mobility. They might need to work on fascia, especially like with endo. Um, they've got to work on their trauma because oftentimes these health journeys bring a lot of trauma, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of just absolute stress. And so adding the stress of exercise is not always the right move now to, and I know a lot of these women are coming to you wanting to lose weight already, but a lot of times reducing the stress of just the emotional stress and the nutritional stress oftentimes will lead to weight loss or fat loss. Um, and then you can start, once you build these strong foundations, just implement strength training slowly. Like these women have been saying, like build a base. You don't need to baby yourself because you have PCOS. You don't need to baby yourself because you have endo. Most women like build a foundation and they're like, Oh, my doctor said I don't have PCOS anymore. Or my doctor says I don't have endometriosis anymore. So you literally base your whole life on this diagnosis. So I think it's just important to remember, like, you don't need to do anything different per se in the sense of like, once you're ready to start strength training, you can start strength training, just like we've been talking about this whole time. It's just, you might need to, you might be in a much more imbalanced state than another person. And so you got to start, you know, at a different place and maybe be a little bit more gradual about your implementation. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that was so good ladies. I think we'll wrap it up now because we're all like so hungry. (laughs) Our blood sugar is low. I just want to say thanks again. This was so awesome and, you know, just so much great um, information. And I'll obviously put everyone's, I mean, I'm sure most people listening to this will know who everyone is, but I'll put everyone's information at the bottom because you're all rock stars uh, so they can find you. Um, But, yeah, thanks so much, ladies. Thank you. (laughs) 